0: Seensters and posers, and welcome to the Book of Very, Very Bad Things podcast. I'm your host, Peter. This week, we have legendary, legendary author, songwriter, and the head of Astrophil Press, Duncan Barlow. Duncan's music career began in the 1980s in the band Death Watch. Death Watch became what we know as the mighty Endpoint. From there on, he started the band Step Down, which became what we all know as Guilt. As the 90s trudged on, Duncan started yet another project with Endpoint vocalist Rob Point. Together, they created the incredible By the Grace of God. Pepper in a Little Aussie Lake, which came directly after a break for By the Grace of God, as well as myriad other side projects, he moved into writing novels, beginning with 2008's Supercell Anemia. From there on, he moved into A Flesh and Fur, The City Awake, and the most recent, A Dog Between Us. Most recently on the music front, we have the incredible solo album, Colony Collapse, this one's been a long time coming, folks. So without further ado, I give to you Duncan Barlow on the Book of Very, Very Bad Things podcast. There it is. There it is. So, <laughs> so we're in, we're like under a bunch of snow and ice right now, and it's funny because it actually reminds me of the last time I laid eyes on you. Which, oh yeah. Which would have been New Year's Day. Uh, 1998 or nine, I forget which year. It was when my my f- best friend Hans and myself and my other best friend Jay Hudak drove out and stayed at your place because Hans was trying out for By the Grace of God.
1: Oh my gosh, yes,
0: Hans!
1: <laughs> Hans oh my gosh, God, God rest you know. Yeah, rest in peace, Hans. Mm-hmm. What a, what a
0: what a wonderful human. We had such a blast with you, um, and I remember all the way back then. I don't remember if it was 98 or 99, Duncan, do you recall? I would
1: have said 98 because, yeah, 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 98.
0: All the way back then, you and I were speaking about you becoming an author because I was in the, at that point, I was in the midst of trying to get my novel published and you were talking about wanting to be an author for a living yourself and mm-hmm. i i think it's pretty amazing that all these years later you're what four books deep <laughs> yeah i mean they don't they don't pay the rent but yeah no i mean <laughs> what what labor of love does in this day and age we all have to have that you know day job
1: right uh, luckily my day job is talking about
0: writing so it yeah. works out yeah lucky guy <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I kind of wanted instead of to um, I, I have a format for this, I, I'm mm-hmm. going to kind of bypass it though. Um, because I always ask my first question is always what's your greatest existential fear, but you're an artist. So I'm, I can pretty much bet what yours is going to be. <laughs> so,
1: yeah, yeah. I don't know. You know, that's a, I mean, it's a really good question. Um, uh, <sighs> you know, it, I think when I was younger it used to sort of be death but you know as you get older you just you know that's part of I mean right now we're we're made aware of it every day by mm-hmm. you know climbing numbers uh and I think for me it would probably be you know I feel like as as people who create things we're we're always looking to to get it right mm-hmm. And I think uh, my greatest fear is not getting to get it right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I think that's, that's a recurring thing with all artists, you know, like we're, Mm -hmm. we're all trying to strive not only to get it right, to make this our best, this is the best thing I've done. And I don't know. I think that chase is kind of what makes for great art because if you ever reach a point where you've hit that ceiling, and you've that's your pinnacle, mm-hmm. you have nowhere else to go but down. So <laughs> that that is true. I mean, you would like
1: to think that you'd be like done it. Mm-hmm. I can uh, stop trying now. But you know, I think that's one of the exquisite uh, tortures of life as a, as artists, as we're always. We're always learning mm-hmm. so we we never plateau, and if we do plateau, then it's like you know you just kind of get stagnant
0: right I think yeah. i i I think that's probably why like with the exception of you know endpoint and by the grace of God having their similarities, they're not they're not the same band, you know they don't no. like, they don't sound the same and none of your bands sounded the same you know right. not, not really at all so i i think you kind of saved yourself from that like you know hitting okay here's the benchmark and now i can't live up to it so it, you just you went and did something else and you didn't get stagnant because yeah. colony collapse does not sound like it came out of the same guy who was in guilt, the same guy who was an endpoint, or by the grace of God, or like I could see Aussie Lake because they're both dreamy, Mm -hmm. but but that's, I think I mentioned to you that there are, there's a song on colony collapse that reminds me of Aussie Lake a lot. And it's the first track. Oh, okay. And it's just the mood more than anything else. Not the instrumentation, not the, not the style but Colony Collapse almost reminds me of like the birth and death of a relationship. The way that song, those songs arc.
1: Yeah. That was, that was, that was the intent. Um, Oh, good. Okay. uh, Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's good observation on your part. Yeah. Like that came out of, uh, I went through a breakup uh, with uh, someone that was, was, you know, not only sort of my partner, but had been a good friend for many, many years. And, uh, and it, you know those things just they hurt they hurt a lot, and it's almost comical how much they hurt, so I kind of rather than uh, burden them with texts and emails or calls, every time I felt the impulse to reach out, I would just sit down and record uh kind of like a conversation, and just spend that summer you know wrote and recorded that record and <clears throat> sat on it for a long time, but I just, I wanted it to be like, you know, sad, but also really kind of comical. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's why it kind of, it doesn't end on the funny note, right? The funny note is uh, what's the point in loving anything, but then it ends on kind of a, sort of a much more melancholy. Little oh, that's music. a music. The...
0: It's it's morose. It's a very morose <laughs> ending, but you know that there's an acceptance in that last song as well. Uh, it, it does kind of put a nice bow on it, just like this is what I got. It this is what I left with. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I'm I'm glad I read it the right way then because that would have been embarrassing otherwise. All <laughs> oh, right, right. If I was like, well, actually. <laughs> Well, it's It's really about, (laughs) (laughs) you didn't see,
1: it's like, you know, when you, when we were young and I remember, you know, a Fugazi song would come out and you'd think, this is about a relationship, but it never was. No, no, not with
0: them. No, never, never. No, they were, they were a lot more cerebral than a lot of people gave them credit for. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Whereas with uh, most of your lyrics, they were always they were always poetic, but they were always about something so, mm-hmm. and, and whether or not you could always pick it out. I, I think like, you know, the, the way you patch together songs and titled them, you know, whether it be the untitled EP or, you know, uh Bardstown ugly box that was just Greek letters. Right. Mm-hmm. And synesthesia right behind me, that was colors. Um mm-hmm. Lyric, i guess lyrically they fit the moods of the colors on synesthesia and the like but those songs felt to me like they were always about interpersonal relationships be it friendships be it your relationship to the world at large
1: yeah i mean you know um i i as a sort of i guess lyricist I, a lot of my stuff is on the nose it's not you know where i do my abstract thinking is is in pros or whatever but um some of those songs yeah like with synesthesia it was that was very early and we really recorded that because we had broken up and then you know initial offered to put it out and we it kind of got us back together um Mm -hmm. uh but like yeah the first song was uh you know sort of angry song about you know breakup it was, yeah, and then mm-hmm. I think the second song was like, uh, second song was about depression. Uh, there was a song on there about a young woman I knew who was in with the wrong crowd and it worried me. And then there was the song about uh sexual violence. I'm mm-hmm. just kind of trying to remember all the songs on it at this point. <laughs> um, uh, and yeah, yeah. Um, once we got into like uh, the last record, it was really about capitalism and just sort of like seeing, you know, just being really feeling very powerless. Uh, I was, you know, getting ready to graduate college, had no money to my name and I worked all the time. And I was just, i saw everybody getting really into like fashion and clothing and i was just
0: yeah just just had a lot of anger about it (laughs) (laughs) well i remember i mean like even when uh we'd come to see you i i well the side note of that is i showed up in a in a red long sleeve ignite t-shirt and you lived in a crips neighborhood (laughs) if i'm not mistaken (laughs) yes you were like no
1: actually no, I I lived in a Bloods neighborhood.
0: Oh, okay, yeah, so that yeah. so you were so, safe, yeah. I was safe, but only to some. They they yeah. saw who I was. Maybe not so much, but if
1: you crossed Broadway, you would have been in a whole different sitch.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but then I remember we got to talking about that even then, like you know the way that era, that time period of of that music, it really just became that fashion show. That you know everyone lost the plot
1: yeah and you know i mean i think um i'll go off on a little digression here but part of the reason that i i sort of stepped away from the scene and i went to graduate school was like depression and and like anger was eating a hole in me Mm -hmm. and i just it was just like everything was a battle, it felt like everything was a battle and it just felt like, um, it felt corrosive inside of me. So, you know, I went off and and sort of got away from everything and just did a lot of self-work and uh, was able to sort of, you know, move away from that and, and know how to better focus my feelings. Uh, but yeah, it was just like um, you know. Um, I think there were like control issues in there too, where I just didn't like that everybody wasn't doing you know what I thought was the right thing. And, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, and I had a mouth on me, so <clears throat> sure. I mean, I I still do. You know, right. You know. Um,
0: but you know, your I, your exit was a very uh, <laughs> a very dramatic one. I mean, there was an entire. I remember. Well, I, what publication did it come out in when you retired? Oh, Punk Planet. Punk Planet. That's right. Mm-hmm. It was in Punk Planet. And I I loved it. I remember, <laughs> I absolutely, I was like, yes, exactly how I feel. Exactly how I feel.
1: <laughs> I took a lot of shit for that. I, you know, at the time, you know, I kind of wanted it to be like a conversation starter. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but also to sort of say, like, yeah, like I dedicated my life to the punk scene. It was my, you know, my family, almost like a religion, you know, uh, for like a it. lot of us. And uh, and I, I took it seriously trying to walk away. Um, but of course, yeah, a lot of people were just like, what the fuck are you doing? Retiring? Yeah. You know? uh, and uh, and then, you know, Dan ended up putting it in the book. So, you know, just when I thought it had gone away forever, you know, and <laughs> <laughs> it was like, I just I didn't even know about the book. Uh, and I was at a uh, uh, school, and this poet, this famous New York poet, uh, Eileen Miles, was like, "Hey, I saw really, I saw an interview from you in a book. It was really interesting." And I was like, "What?" And so I went to the, you know, went to the city in Denver, saw the book and bought it. And I was like, "It was a little bit like it was a mixed feeling. It was like, oh, that's that's interesting to be included, but it was also like here I am next to Noam Chomsky." You know, going like, you know, the scene is violent. <laughs> just, I was like, oh god.
0: Well, I mean, you're you were just speaking for the microcosm that, that <laughs> we were from. I mean, it's Chomsky's talking about, you know, the world at large. You were talking yeah, yeah. at that time about the world we'd known then.
1: Yeah, yeah, our our very not large world. The,
0: like that yeah <laughs> yeah but speaking of books then you know not too much farther on supercellanemia anemia comes up mm-hmm. so what was the spark what was the the that initial inspiration that just overtook you to i have to get this out of my head
1: oh well yeah um it's kind of an interesting story it's um so i'd gone to to do an MFA in poetry, uh, and found out very quickly that I was a terrible poet, like just terrible. Like, you know, I thought I, you know, I thought I was all right, but I got there and I was like, I don't understand poetry at all, like you know. Um, and I, 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 I went to. I was thinking about leaving and going back to Louisville, and and uh, I met a, an author. Uh, who became really important in my life and, and sort of championed me in ways. Um, and I ended up, you know, applying to a PhD because uh, I, I was about to graduate and uh, got accepted. And I, st- I was writing a little bit of fiction then. And, um, and at the time, I'd just done a tour with uh, playing guitar for Good Riddance. I remember that, uh, yeah. Yeah, because Luke uh, couldn't do it. And uh, <clears throat> there, it, there was a kind of loose offer for perhaps joining. And uh, yeah, I was considering it because I like those guys. Yeah, uh, they're great. But then the, the PhD offered came in. And I was like, well, let's see what that's about. Uh, yeah. And it was there there that I started getting really serious about it. And, uh, you know, the book in hindsight is a mess. And uh, I'm actually uh let's see here in the process because uh there's a discussion about bringing it back into print so i'm in the process of like re-editing it oh wow and and it's mostly like i'll probably cut it down to about two-thirds or less of the size because it's just you know like really sort of green writing a lot of language that i constructions that i wouldn't use now having you know with long has it been now like you
0: know um 12 13 years 14 years past 2008 right yeah 2007 2008 i mean i i had no no bad critique of that of that novel when i'd read Um, it i i really enjoyed it i i thought it was it i thought it read as the almost the ramblings of madness (laughs) that's yeah that's uh and and i i appreciated that because you know that's not dissimilar from my writing style
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean i was very i've always been fascinated with mental illness because i've had you know obviously depression but like you know i've had a lot of friends struggle with schizophrenia and um so i was reading a lot of very interesting uh scholarly work on it and i was also being very influenced by like kafka at the time because he was my major figure yeah at, for my doctorate and uh and i really liked that idea of that that liminal space of you know is this person in a strange world or is he strange right so it never really i try never to give that away um i thought you uh, love
0: that line very well too because i mean the way everything sort of wraps up it's still it's innocuous you know like you don't know yeah i i would hope so i mean reading it
1: now it's you know i think you can understand like when you go back to your old work and you go oh right (laughs) um and if you look at the like, the next novel, which I, I you know, didn't publish for a long time after that because I was too busy teaching, um, mm-hmm. it's a much different. I mean, it still plays with that space of possibility, but
0: it's um, the prose is a lot cleaner. Well, yeah, a f- a flesh and fur is definitely a lot. It, it's more razor sharp, and mm-hmm. and it, and it the prose, it cuts to the bone a lot more cleanly but but you still play with words and and there's you still have that almost uh you know irish lilt in turn of phrase which i, I appreciate obviously but there's I, that, at that point like the train it seemed like the train was rolling in a mm-hmm. literary sense you know yeah, I'd really- then, then it starts boom 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 coming out year after year after year we get a, another novel another novel and i was like okay he's on a roll now
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, Flesh and Fur, I wrote it after uh, uh, The City Awake. Uh, The City Awake is one I wrote, and I was really bad about sending work out. I'd send it to like two presses that I loved, and they might have interest but pass, and then I'd be like, okay, time to write a new book. Uh, And then when I decided to take a job in South Dakota, I said, okay, if I'm going to go up that cold... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna spend a little more time sending this out to agents and uh, age uh, editors and uh, found some homes uh, and uh yeah you know and so i I, I think you know a, a good friend of mine uh Laird hunt has a he, he he always talks about in interviews how he always has like two or three books, going and then you know like maybe the newer one he'll finish first and this other thing he's been dragging along for five ten years mm-hmm. uh, so it seems like you're just writing novel after novel but you might have them collected so i have like three books in the process over the last six years that are just at varying stages of undress <laughs>
0: I well I mean it's just like writing songs in that in that fashion then I would suppose <laughs> because the, you, you have all these different ideas that come to you at different times of day or week or month you have to get them out yeah so it's it's not like you have an entire outline of a novel here here and here and yeah take... yeah have you have, have you been reading anything lately that really you were like Caught you caught you know, caught you aflame and you wanted to to, to write. Um yeah, you know, well yeah, obviously. Um I'm trying to think of a really good <laughs> example. Most of it is is underground uh and horror oriented. Um, but yeah, like there's always whenever I read like, let's see, Dog Between us got me like that and Chad mm-hmm. Stroop. Uh, I don't know if you Chad. remember you know Chad, right? Chad yeah, Stroop yeah. his uh uh, Secrets of the Weird. A few years back, that that really grabbed me because it was like David Lynch meets David Cronenberg, you know. And oh yeah, um,
1: yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think of the. I read the one about the leopard,
0: sexy leper.
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, and uh, yeah, he and uh, he and David Agronoff do a lot of that sort of bizarro i I don't want to use bizarro but like you know kind of like the uh slippage horror a little more yeah um and dave does that really great podcast uh the dickheads podcast which is like horror and sci-fi and uh um yeah you know like horror is interesting because uh i've always been a big fan of it but i never wrote it um and i started teaching a horror literature course recently that i i just love um and it it, and i'd read this book called have you read white is for witching yeah yeah i mean just phenomenal writing in that um and so i was like you know what i kind of think i it's time to start trying to write something that's a little more genre slanted so I've been working on something uh, that I'm only a couple hundred pages into and still, you know, I haven't done the reading of it to go, does this make any sense? (laughs) Uh,
0: (laughs) But You've uh, always had darkness in all, in all of your work. There's, there's a a very large undercurrent of, of like utter Stygian darkness. Yes. It doesn't overtake everything. And I think, that could lend itself to some incredible genre work
1: you know it, it I would hope so, you know um and and oddly, you know, the author I was talking about that uh, sort of inspired me to write fiction was Brian Evanson, okay, you know, and he had had like I think it was his second or third book out. it just come out and uh, and I saw him, you know, it was really interesting because I had done a a little student micro lecture and he had sat through it and he came up and was talking about how he grew up in the punk scene and we start talking bands you know and uh and i was like that guy's really cool i'm gonna go see him read tonight you know and i went and saw him and he read the polygamy of language from contagion and i was just like oh my god this guy is writing horror stuff that sounds like horror but is very academic, like in this something I'd never seen before. And the, the sentences were so tight and it was so strange. And so, you know, <laughs> bought the book and just read through it and thought, oh, this is what I want to do. This is this is it. I found my my sweet spot. And uh, you know, and I've had the great privilege of, you know, being his friend and actually getting to reprint his book on the, on the press and, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and from there it just kind of spread where I was just finding other writers that kind of, you know, had that same sort of strangeness and apocalyptic literary
0: uh, slant. Yeah, that was my first. I've never had it. I've only ever had like a few short stories and a lot of poetry published. Mm -hmm. My first novel that I wrote, I had written and had just finished writing when I met you way back then. I remember telling you about it and telling you how um, it was like a conflagration of, uh, you know, the Cthulhu mythos-esque without calling it that, but it was Mm -hmm. a a similar conundrum Mm -hmm. just built into a very small, neighborhood of mm-hmm. of people that are you know they're being their personalities are, are, are being manipulated and I remember you you were like that now that sounds like a, I would read that yeah <laughs> but you know I've gone back to it and gone back to it and gone back to it and the <clears throat> it's it's no wonder it didn't get published i but mean, <laughs> well, very childish it was very childish
1: I I think that's um you know, uh, I think for me, I always felt like you kind of had to burn through a few books with good ideas, but bad execution before you you land finally. Yeah. Um, and uh, our, our greatest hope as writers is to, to find an editor who understands us, but also makes us better. Yeah. Right. That Kn- Knows how to read us and be like, uh. Let's work on this. Uh I'm always wanting a really good invasive line editor, but I, you know, uh my publisher has been pretty gentle. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm just like, I, I remember telling him, I was like, James, tear it apart. And you know, he's just wonderful, his work is amazing too. And his he's just this wonderful British guy. And he's like, you know, I'm not, I'm not gonna
0: do that. <laughs> <You know? laughs> He probably has too (laughs) much empathy for the written word to (laughs) go in and really like attack you. But you take Um, someone like my childhood hero was Clive Barker. Like from 10, 12 years old, he was my hero. And you can literally tell when he lost his original editor. Oh yeah. You can see it because you go back to like a magic uh, and the great secret show. I mean, these are wonderful sweeping epics And then the last like four or five published works, it is it's clunky.
1: And and he gets way more into the fantasy than he does the uh the horror. Um and you know, it's funny because I think I think we are of a sort of time where, you know, we'd been given Stephen King. And to me, you know, I was grew up dyslexic and struggled against reading as a kid. And so stephen king felt like you know that was a lot of commitment yeah you know you might be able to get through carry but like uh you know the the nest or something yeah the stand that's a totally different bundle of apples and uh when somebody had this friend of mine this metalhead kid that slipped me books a copy of books of blood in class
2: Mm -hmm.
1: uh, because i was like oh what is that and he showed me, yeah. You know, oh, it's this. He's like, I just finished it. And I was like, can I borrow it. And, and I, like, that whole day, I didn't participate in class. I feel like the teachers at that time were like, at least he's reading. Right? Like, I, yeah, I guarantee yeah. that's what was going on, yeah, like, Like, uh, and so I just, you know, I cranked through these. And I was just, like, bought all of his books, you know. Like, I think yeah. Cabal had not yet come out. So it was everything up until Cabal, and uh, did my senior, you know, project on Clive Barker, and and just just loved his work. And you know, now when I go back, I feel like you know I see the problems with the the writing here and there, but um, uh,
0: yeah, there
1: was definitely a, a tribe of us that were changed by
0: his writing absolutely and that whole i see my when i'd first discovered him it was uh i, I would have to say that what was the name of it the splatter punk volume one i think it was splatter mm. punk volume one that he was in and right after that i'd gone to my local little uh drugstore and they had like a little rack a spinner rack of books and hellbound heart was on that spinner mm. rack for like a buck and a half. So I picked that up, and I was way too young to have read that. Oh, oh yeah, far too young to have read it. <laughs> <laughs> and I a burnt, whole
1: novel on sexual desire?
0: <laughs> yeah, on S and M and sexual desire. Yes. And, oh my god! But I burned through it inside of like a day because it's very it's very slender. Yeah. And from there on, I mean, not only was my uh, taste in fiction. But my, you know, I I would hasten to say the reason why I became a punk all had to do with that experience, that exposure to Clive. That that's really that's really interesting. Yeah,
1: like I feel like most of my life I stumbled into things, right? Mm-hmm. Like you know, like other people would, they're very intent. You know, they're very, they they plan and they say, "I'm gonna oh." And now I'll get this and I'll do this. And, you know, for me, it was just like things that happened, you know, like getting into punk was just like we had before MTV, there was like a local cable music video channel. And really the only videos that existed at the time were like punk and new wave. Like, not, I don't even think it was called new wave yet, but like, you know, like Gary Newman and uh, the Ramones and the Clash and, you know, all these bands that you know didn't get any airtime before and that's what i got exposed to and yeah yeah you know, i was instantly a weirdo that was just like already a snob because i was like what
0: sticks
1: <laughs> uh, you know like yeah i was <laughs> you know,
0: i never liked any of that stuff either <laughs> yeah, yeah give
1: give me the the ramones and the clash and, and uh but it was that you know everything was kind of accidental and i just happened to be there at the right time um and i love that you're you're sort of you're a seeker you know Mm -hmm. you seek things out and you're very i mean just looking at your records up there you know like all these different like you know all all excellent records with except for the guilt one right (laughs) (laughs) okay lifetime sunny day that vision record that is just excellent
0: yeah yeah uh, i all of my exposure to hardcore and punk, that's all accidental, too, because my father took me to see The Who at Shea Stadium, and The oh, Clash true. opened. And The Clash opened. Oh, oh my God, yes. Fucking ruined my life. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> pushed me. Uh, that Clive Barker and The Clash. The Boom. Clash.
1: I mean, I think people... I think The Clash is one of those bands that we just... everybody's kind of accepts is... is important and great but like it's sometimes when you go back and really look at it you know and look at the fact that they were like well we want this you know uh record to be a double record we'll take a loss
0: yeah yeah because the working Indianista. class <laughs> yeah like, like and was like com- commercial suicide
1: yeah yeah and yet
0: yeah you know, and
1: it's funny because wilco did that same thing with being there
0: and and that's oh
1: yeah that's a I mean that record
0: album that's their best album
1: I uh definitely I say that is my favorite of their their that record
0: that and Summer Teeth those two really do it for me
1: yeah Summer Teeth was great it took me a minute to get into it because of how much of the like Beach Boys and Beatles were in it but uh uh because I was kind of more being there and then
0: but I, I really did being there was more of like flying burrito brothers and like, you know, it had that, uh, it still had enough of Jeff Tweedy's past in it Mm -hmm. to make it punk enough for Mm -hmm.
1: me. Yeah. And you know, it was funny because back in that day, everybody was like, it was a sort of a rivalry between Sunvolt and, and yeah, Wilco. And I think with being there, Allegedly, I don't know if this is true, but uh, uh, he had heard being there and told them to hold, like Strange Ways was supposed to come out around the same time. Uh, Is it Strange Ways? What was the second symbol record? I can't remember.
0: Wide Swing Tremolo.
1: Was it? Okay. So they they held it because they didn't want it to come out at the same time. And I think that I think it was that record, but it was definitely summer teeth where it was like there was no there's no contest there, like yeah jeff was Jeff was growing and 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 part of that is he sobered up, yeah, yeah
0: uh, and he and I mean, he got to you know make albums with Billy Bragg, mm-hmm.
1: yeah, and you know for me, I kind of tapped out with the. There's a couple songs I liked on um the next record,
0: uh, Yankee Foxtrot Hotel. Yankee Foxtrot. That's where I gave uh, up. When yeah, I, that's what i when I put it away, unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> but then Sky Blue Sky
1: was just excellent, you know, um, an excellent record. So I really enjoyed that when it came out. But yeah, most of it I just kind of. You Know, I'm not real good about following bands forever because at I, some point I just, yeah, there's so few that
0: neurosis oh, I neur- followed the whole way, them I followed the whole way. But. You know,
1: I, I was just thinking as I said that about neurosis, and then I was thinking about your email, okay, neurot,
0: yep, <laughs> yep.
1: Yeah.
0: what it, you know how embarrassed I was when I had to email Steve Von Till a couple of weeks ago to be on the show? And I'm like, oh, fuck. He's going to look at that and be like, this guy's a weirdo. He's probably stalking me. right outside my house right now. <laughs> you know, the thing about
1: Steve is he is literally one of the, just the most sort of righteous,
0: good dudes. He really is. He really is. I had such a good time with him. I dropped something. Give me one second. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Oh the older I get the worse I get.
1: <sighs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's sad, right? <laughs> oh god, I I I drop everything and you know I have uh, I, I hit the family reset button. I have a 3-year-old son at 45 years old. So <laughs> right <laughs> right. Chasing around a 3-year-old of my age is a ton of fun. But um yeah, Steve is just he's so grounded mm-hmm. and so humble. And now he is writing And he's writing poetry at a very, very advanced level because he's, Mm -hmm. he's been doing it forever and just never shared it with anyone.
1: Yeah. He and I, um, uh, Astrophil is distributing and, uh, a partner in that book. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Uh, which was like, great, you know, like, uh, it's, it's a love, it's a beautiful book and people have really responded to it. Well, just sells and sells and, uh, yeah, it was great because it was good to sort of, you know, be in close contact with Steve on it and uh, go through it all. Uh, and that's one that I didn't have to do much work on; he did all the work, which oh, was, you know, great. Yeah,
0: he's his vision is is very wide scope. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he 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 sees the whole picture at once. Mm-hmm. Now, if you ask him, he he's feeling around in the dark, but I I sincerely doubt that. I sincerely doubt that, especially predicated upon the last three releases of his.
1: Oh, that newest one was just gorgeous.
0: And coming on the heels of something like that, you know, I always put, you know, as much as I was in, as a kid, I was in love with Endpoint, but guilt, neurosis, and they were probably i guess isis a little later on but not as much yeah. I, they were good but guilt and neurosis were like interchangeable to me almost even though they didn't sound the same they were in, yeah. at, they inhabited the same space for me and i don't know i think i probably did tell you this when i was staying with you uh when i'd written that novel that is a clunky piece of garbage <laughs> <laughs> the the soundtrack to its inception uh, was everything guilt had written up to that point everything neurosis had written and stark weather i was okay, yeah. th- three bands and that's it while i was writing it and those were the three um very very metal mm-hmm. um and you know i mean i think
1: so obviously there is neurosis influence in in some of the 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 later guilt. I mean, we were, when we had written the first few songs, I I hadn't even heard Souls at Zero. It was, um, uh, I don't think I would hear that. I would hear that on tour with Endpoint, our driver just kept playing it um, because I think it pretty much just come out. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I was like, what is this? He's like neurosis. I was like, this is the new neurosis? Like, like, oh my God, this is amazing. Right. Uh and like I'd already written most of the guilt 12 inch by that point, you know. Um, <clears throat> and so you know, it wasn't, I think the 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 neurosis later influenced us just in the kind of trying to open up that sonic space so it wasn't so chuck 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 but it was a little more you know there was a little more um open dissonance happening and then you know um obviously bands like jehu and fugazi were very influential with with us because we did a lot of that like high note you know ring out and and sort of uh i just remember when so mario had given me i wasn't super great like into the first jehu record and uh mario was in louisville uh for a little while and we were hanging out and he was he had a uh recording of yank crime before it came out and he was like oh you should just borrow this listen to it and i listened to it and i was like okay you're right this is this this is probably the, the greatest record I've heard in a while. Um, and, uh, you know, and that was right when guilt was writing some of the Bardstown stuff. So I think it made its way in. I, I'm, I, I was very influenced by things, you know, when I would hear it and just sort of fold it in. And of course our buddies in Rodan were doing kind of a similar, yeah, you know, and Louisville is, you know, I mean, even with Endpoint, you can hear l- l- the Louisvilleness in it with like weird harmonics and uh, odd notes.
0: <laughs> but then when you brought in, you brought in the um, the percussion. Like the, your shows, you would have like you know everybody playing drums at one point. Like it would just be like, what the fuck is this? And, it, mm-hmm. and just that cacophony of of, of percussion. It, it really I used to end the shows like that, didn't you? Uh no, first endpoint part. did. Oh, endpoint did. That's right. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: It it started uh
1: can't remember who started it first. I think endpoint probably we started it first. Just it was like it was on the one of our last tours where Chuck uh from Split Lip would would bring his toms on and We'd start playing, and it just turned into a, like a jam session, mm-hmm. uh, which you know now I would imagine would probably seem pretty insufferable to the average kid coming to the show. <laughs> like, what am I doing now? Just play, just play,
0: model. You know? uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, See, I lived for that kind of shit. I mean that that <laughs> that's what made going to shows interesting, you know, yeah. things like that. But to, like conversely, talking to the same person who made all of that music, your, you know, uh, your new 7-inch and the new 12-inch Colony Collapse, they're very dream pop mm. uh, inspired, I think. I hear like, you know, if my bloody Valentine went acoustic mixed with like, you know, there there's just, there there's a lot going on there in a very minimalistic style you know what i mean there's just there's there's a song there's a songwriter in there that's it it almost it almost doesn't make sense but it makes (laughs) sense because the sense that that sense of melodicism is it's very at the fore of the seven inch and the 12 inch
1: well you know it's interesting because when you're not writing with a band it changes the approach and mm. so like the 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 12 inch for example um yeah i started i recorded all the tracks acoustic at first and you know i was at the time the original tracks it was very like 60s uh sort of psychedelic pop stuff that i was you know kind of working with at the beginning uh that vibe and mm. then uh I, you know, my friend Joe Plummer, who has been in a ton of huge, like really amazing bands, you know, just like, uh, he was like, oh, you know, um, he had offered, like yeah, I know you're kind of isolated. If you ever want me to drum on stuff, I will. And so I sent him these and he drummed and then those gave me new ideas. And so it was a lot of like, I call it, you know, kind of Dr. Frankensteining parts and moving parts around and rewriting new parts and creating loops and uh so some of the songs were are radically different than what i originally intended right like mm-hmm. so the first song very much what i intended uh the uh, second song the same but when we get into like of want and mystery those are completely different um and then there's the one that has the kind of weird David Bowie revert or delay on the vocals. That one just, you know, I had no real vision on it and I just made loops. And then uh, Jason Lowenstein asked him if he would do some bass tracks for it. So I sent them to him and, you know, he's just such a great musician. So yeah, I was really lucky, you know, because they, they just make it all sound so much better uh, than, than what it was. And, you know, did they all come out the way I wanted them? No, not at all. Right. Like some of them, I was like, had a different vision. Uh, and that seven inch, uh, you know, uh, I got contacted by Austin and Juan and they're like, Hey, we want to do, we're doing a seven inch club. We'd love you to do one. And I, I didn't have anything. And I said, uh, okay. And I said, maybe I'll do like a holiday thing like maybe a Halloween single yeah and they came back and said yes do a Christmas single and I was like oh Christmas how do I do Christmas
0: I know um, you you when I when <laughs> I came to see you you had a, a pagan you had a pagan tree in your living room <laughs> made with pentacles made out of popsicle sticks
1: yeah 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 we did um uh, and uh then uh yeah but like you know i kind of found my way through it and i think there's kind of one of the songs has kind of a i'd say almost like a new wave uh almost uh kind of like a church vibe to it you know the the church and the other one was kind of like a just a kind of a motowny kind of and jangly song
0: and it had a great title nietzsche and holiday <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah yeah it was like i, I excited i wanted to have a song for the rest of us one that was like okay well you don't really have to have a god to get together <laughs> on you know the darkest day of the year you, you yeah just, so we just need friends <laughs>
0: <laughs> but uh, is this uh, is this incarnation something you're going to continue on with or do you have another musical vision that you're Sort of approaching, you know i so I don't I, I'm always kind of
1: making half songs. Um, I am I just started collaborating with an old friend of mine in Denver, uh, Keith Kurtz, who who did this amazing noise band uh, uh, echo beds that was on Flimser. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we we're kind of wanting the same thing, but we're coming in a different direction each, right? um so he's got these sort of ideas of sonically what he wants to do and then i've got like you know i kind of told him i was like yeah you know i sent him some things i'm like i'm kind of trying to write what (laughs) i called saharan gothic you know (laughs) um uh it's got kind of a, a a western kind of feel to it and uh and use like I, I all of my projects I start uh with using natural inst like uh like they' I start with not having drums but i I have like uh recordings of like creating beats on a cello's body or you know things like that and then I start layering things on and putting in strings and vibes and uh and uh you know we're sending these files back and forth and he always comes up with this really interesting you know sort of uh dissonant and atonal kind of scales that go on top of it and i mean I'm, I'm probably making it sound more pretentious than it is but it's um you know it's it's been fun because he's so excited and it's just good to work you know i can't find people to play with up here yeah um Uh, it's funny I posted on on Facebook like hey guys like I want to do a band right like get at me and it's like all these awesome people from all over the world saying like yeah I'd be in you know (laughs) not anybody in town really Uh, and uh, you know and I I, and I've been wanting to do a punk band Uh, and by the grace of God we we had the will but we're just like you know Rob lives in north carolina i live here mm. and um uh, it's hard to, for us all to get together especially with the pandemic like i've written it at, at least i've written almost an entire like lp of by the grace of god songs that just jesus live live on my phone as notes um <laughs> and i've been wanting to do like hardcore or metal and you know like uh uh eric larson from avail mm. And I were talking about collaborating with maybe Ryan from uh, uh, Photo Crime. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, it's just, there's these complications that happen. But I just love to be in a room with people and write some music. You know, I just miss it. I haven't had that since I lived, you know, I think in Florida. Yeah. Oh, wow. I had a band that recorded, We, we were together less than a year, we wrote songs recorded them in my living room and then I moved.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I think a lot of a lot of people nowadays, well now with the pandemic, people nobody's like really getting together mm-hmm. as much as they would have or should, but um you know, a lot of people are just emailing each other song parts and that's that's cool but it's not it's not
1: the same. Yeah, because the song doesn't get to transform in the natural way over, mm. you know, playing shows, trying things, adapting it, you know. Um, that was the thing with D, like my D like the last record came from just like, I mean, how we wrote those songs and how they ended up on the record, they sounded night like and day, you know, because mm. we would like micro correct and, you know, try new things and we'd be like, let's move the end bridge to the beginning or you know. Um but yeah, I mean like uh Rob Pennington is doing a new band uh in North Carolina and it's it's really promising. There's some I mean just some really cool sort of D- early DC vibes to it that mm-hmm. uh you know like a a melodic but still there's that aggression in it. I don't know. It's I think uh i'm excited for them to record
0: that's i'm it's cool that rob's still doing things as well i mean yeah. he's, he sort of always did like there was there was a because he had what black cross right mm-hmm. and yeah then... he's always been at
1: it and uh that's a person that like you know most of the time when somebody talks online about somebody i know you know i'm like well i can see you know, like I can see why they would say that. Maybe I, I don't agree with it, but, you know, like they can be kind of a dick sometimes.
0: You know? like well, No, Rob, like, uh, when I met Rob, <laughs> I, did, I didn't like him the first day. Um, and then by the second day, I loved him. Yeah, he's
1: he's sort of, he's he's an odd dude, like in the best way, like, you know, but he is the most caring, loving. Like. Like, when, when I see people get on there and talk about him, I'm just like, if you're talking bad about Rob, you are probably a bad person, right? Well, because he is he is one of the most, he's like almost a saint in how giving and loving and caring he is.
0: He's dedicated his life to it. Well, you know why Rob and I didn't get along was we, we were in your practice space and Hans was always vulgar. <laughs> and from this part of the east coast we we would say the word retarded oh yes and like hans he was just doing something ridiculous as as was his way and i said dude you're 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 being retarded stop and rob got real pissed at me and Mm i and i was like you know what yeah you're right i shouldn't i shouldn't say stuff like that i mean this was the 90s i was i was in my 20s and we weren't nearly uh, i I just wasn't the same person I am right now. So, you know, I knew then you shouldn't say that type of shit, but it just it was that east coastism that slipped out and he checked me on it and I I would got pissy about it for a hot minute and then by the next day I I loved the guy because I was like, yeah, he's, you're absolutely right. That was a dickhead thing to say. Well,
1: <laughs> you, know? you know, I think anytime I think that's the the sign of of a of somebody who thinks, right? Like, you know, there's a lot of things when people say it to me and I go my first reaction is middle finger but then you know I think about it and I go yeah they were right yeah (laughs) I was being a jerk and you know I was so in my 20s I was so I don't know just you know there's a lot there's a lot of battle in my head of emotion and and so when I meet people now and they say I met you in blah 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 i always go was i mean to you like was <sighs> I? Yeah. because i'm always scared that i was you know and luckily most of the time they're like no no but i know there's people i was probably really like condescending to or mean to and and you know um and so i'm always just like you know hoping to meet those people and be like hey
0: sorry yeah <laughs> sorry for
1: being kind of a jerk uh, <laughs> uh
0: I didn't even, Um, you know, I didn't realize that people had that opinion of Rob as a whole. Though I didn't know that that was like a thing. You know, I think it's certain people. Um, like I
1: think part of Rob's uh, being a singer was he he took on things that often weren't the popular thing to take on. You know, like when we were playing with bands that were just kind of saying don't eat meat and don't drink rob was like hey here's these other things we should be considering right Mm -hmm. uh and i think that some people felt like he was calling them out or uh you know but uh, rob's always just been he's a good guy you know he talks he'll sit down with anybody and talk to them. Mm -hmm. i just remember when we in point was at the height of popularity in our town and we're like you know, over you know, thousand or more kids at each show, and he would give out his telephone number on stage and be like, "If you need help, just talk to me." And I'm just like, "What are you, what are you doing?" <laughs> like they're gonna call you, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they did, you know. And he I'm would sure. take time, and, you know. Uh... <laughs> I was just like, "All right, man, good on you, but don't give them my number." <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's that's i I, w- I wouldn't do it either <laughs> yeah, no way. there are a lot of,
1: there's a lot of 15 year olds in this crowd man
0: yeah <laughs> time to burn <laughs> so uh, th- this is like uh it, it, i think this is the 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 conundrum for all men of a certain age who still like this type of music finding people to play with. I I think that is, I think that's always going to be the problem, especially finding a drummer for the most part. You know, how are we going to find a drummer?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's the thing. Is like with, I think the singer and the drummer are the two things that can really affect the sound. And, you know, like, um, I think, I mean, obviously guitar and bass, yes, but like, not as much like, it's almost like the the, the, the drums become kind of the soul of the band and, and the way that drummer plays, right? You can get a replacement, but it's not going to have the same sway to it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that was like what part of the reason endpoint struggled is you know once lee quit um, and we got kyle kyle was such a good drummer and then you know we couldn't really find you know he he couldn't do it long uh he wanted to sort of focus on his relationship and his major which he would later get out of uh mm. and yeah you know, uh, as we do when we're young uh, yeah uh and so he he kind of did his thing and you know had a really great career in music after that uh and we just kind of i was just like i'm just tired (laughs) guys i'm tired of tired of this like i'm tired of replacing members and uh you know and i i don't feel like everybody's hearts in it in the same way and maybe it's time we we break up and it's kind of sad because we were playing that like i think it was like the united nations or something like that maybe long island I, I can't even remember where it was but um we had played the show and i felt like we were going through the motions and so i kind of said you guys keep doing it i'm out right like uh and and rob was like well, if you're out we can't do it and so we kind of said so i guess we're breaking up and we'll just finish the tour and everybody goes yeah and then it, it hit me that it was Rob's birthday. <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, yeah. Good thing you're still friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: I mean, that's not the worst thing I ever did to Rob, you know. Well, we we were we were like, you know, brothers since 1987, 1986. So, you know. You go through a lot of growing planes and give each other a lot of slights. <laughs> sure. yeah, It's amazing. I still, you know, he and Andy Tinsley and some of these people are still Kyle are still tight friends with me.
0: <laughs> those, you know, though those, those friends you go through hell with and the ones you make early on, they're normally the ones that stay in place. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But the one, I guess, all of this just comes down to it's a great thing that you have, you know, writing on your side because that you don't need anyone for.
1: <clears throat> well, you do though, right? Like yeah, you, do, you need a community, and uh, you need uh, you need editors and stuff. But yeah, I mean, like writing is a very solitary act when you're you're in the process, and it's a maddening act. It's not like music where you get to do micro tests with shows before you, you know, and demos before you finally put it on vinyl or whatever. But like with writing, you're lugging this 300 page or whatever thing around with you for years. And mm-hmm. every day you're like, you toggle between, Oh, this is uh, okay. I think this is all right. I think too, you, you know, you are a total failure. This is garbage. Nobody's going to, is this even a story, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: it, it just, the, the, I think with all art, you reach a point where you just have to sort of get divorced from it and be like, okay, go off to college.
1: <laughs> you know, that was always my problem with writing is I just kept it because I was waiting for it to be perfect. And, uh, and you know, one day I just realized, like, I got to just be okay with it being imperfect, you know, yeah. and let it go out into the world and, you know, uh, see how it does. And, uh, yeah. So... Everything, and I tell that to my students. I'm like, "Look, you're going to revise this and revise it and revise. I mean, you should be revising it. Um, And one day you'll just have to get it good enough and let it out into the world. But trust me, when you're at your book reading, uh, you're going to want to revise it while you're reading.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's never done. Yeah, that it's got to be a treat though that you get to teach young adults instead of yeah, children? Sometimes,
1: sometimes. I mean, you know, with the graduate students, it's great because they have a lot of vision uh, and they really care. Um, uh, and sometimes, you know, it can be a little tougher for them because they may not see, they may not see what you're trying to do. Right. They may not, they, they may think they, they've got it figured out and they don't need your commentary. Um, but like uh, typically they're very engaged and accepting and they, they, they want feedback. Um, with the undergrads, it's, you know, it, it can be hit or miss. So like when you're teaching, a, we, we have to teach a lot of um, all the writing staff, we have to teach a lot of um, intro classes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because those are kind of the bread and butter, right? Like they, yeah. <laughs> they keep the lights on and um, and you have a lot of students that, that are really green and some of them don't even care, right? So sometimes it's like you're watching this thing you love being, you know, brutalized on the page because they don't care about it. Uh, and other times you see the, the spark in someone where you say, you need to do, <laughs> you need to do this more because you're you've got it. Like I can mm. tell you got it. And uh, sometimes it changes a person's life, you know, like it changes the trajectory. And um,
0: that happened to me in eighth grade. Yeah. Did I it? didn't, I didn't know I wanted to be a writer. I just, I was just writing for school and I was in advanced classes back then before I discovered the joys of narcotics and my, my eighth grade teacher, uh, literary literary teacher uh, mrs. Gallagher she'd I'd written this short horror story about you know it was some kind of splatterpunk inspired you know miasma of of brutality but mm-hmm. she'd actually made me put it like stand up and read it to the class and she was oh so proud of me and she was going to get me published in legends magazine and you in New York she she really pushed me and pushed me and I wouldn't be doing it to this day, had it not been for that woman.
1: What was her last name
0: again? Gallagher. Gallagher. Right. Right. She is
1: like, this is amazing. And she smashes a watermelon in there. (laughs) Uh, Now we're uh, going to smash some fruit. (laughs) Like you smashed this story. (laughs) Um, uh, I think that, uh, no, that's exactly w- what kids need, right? Like that's what happened to me. Um, you know, I had one teacher pick me out and say, "You can do a thing and and just having somebody believe in you, right mm. It's so rare, right? And um and I think that's real, and that's, you know one of my things as as a teacher. I think when i first started teaching it was all about like you need to do you're not doing enough you need to meet these guidelines things like that but like Hmm. now the culture of student has really changed and I, i really spend my time now just like going how can i help you be better at whatever you're doing right and like how can i help you like right now they're dealing with this kind of like i mean i think we all are dealing with this sort of psychic uh, drain of, you know, like we're watching you know, talking heads spit vitriol and we're watching people die and everybody we know is getting sick and we're isolated. and And these kids are just carrying that with them and whether or not they know it, you know, it's just, it's there mm-hmm. and you can just see it, you know. And just like letting them know that like somebody is listening even my grad students, God, my poor grad students are so fatigued and just their spirit is hurt, you know? I mean, I know that sounds really like, you know, oh, and then we got out our crystals, but, but like you, <laughs> you just can see it, you know? And they're having to take on the burdens of their students that they're teaching. And, you know, like every day I'm having a student come to me and talk about, you know, how somebody they know recently died and they don't know what to do with it or, you know, and and so it's just like that's the one place in my life that i can actually make a difference Mm -hmm. that i see right like because we feel so you know alienated because of you know post human capitalism Mm -hmm. but like you know like you know how it is with your kid right like when when he does something good and you 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 invest in him or even when he does something bad and you talk to him like a human Right. Mm. And you're just like, look, buddy, this is, you know, you see that change and you know that you have made an impact in the world in some meaningful way. Yeah. And for me, writing is the place that I think, you know, I can help them. And it's the place like where kids get, you know, I call them kids, but Jesus, they're adults, right? But yeah. they're they're they they can they can be honest. In ways that they've never been allowed to be honest, because they're away from their small town, yeah. and their parents, and they're away from all the people they grew up with, where they can kind of be themselves. And they, they tell, they tell about their traumas, and they get in a room full of students that listen. And you know, you know, it, it, it just ha- in these classes, you know, kids cry. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they they become tight. form a little community it's like when i'm not complaining about administrative stuff Mm -hmm. (laughs) and being exhausted uh, and you know occasionally complaining how the students are not you know paying attention and uh all the time uh it's really just wow what a what a very cool way to spend my
0: time you know (laughs) I, and it's funny because last night I interviewed John Raba from Boy's Life. Remember the band mm-hmm. Boy's Life? He's a, oh, yeah. he's, he's a teacher now. Uh, he teaches elementary school. And he, he had similar sentiments. And that's legitimately what I'm supposed to be doing right now. Uh, that's what I'd gone to school for, you know. Ah. <laughs> I'm a plumber. So. <laughs>
1: well, you know, here's the thing. I always tell my students, I'm like, you guys are going to school for all these things like business, but you don't know what you're gonna do. Be a plumber, man. Because mm-hmm. what Cause everybody never not everybody poops and nobody <laughs> knows how to fix the plumbing. I mean, that's one thing I just look at and I go, time to call the plumber. <laughs> I'm not, you know, software problem, I can get in there. <laughs>
0: I grew, see, I grew up the son of a plumber, so that just it was ingrained in me. But,
1: mm.
0: my God, I, that was not what I wanted with my life at all. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm I'm going to school for um, getting my degree in literature. It's my passion in life. And I went and I got my BA in Lit. And then I had, my daughter was born directly thereafter, and I never mm-hmm. went for my master's. And I was like, well, fuck, what do I know? I know yeah, I don't want but- to be – I know I can't buy my – in this area, you basically have to buy your job to be a teacher. Um so I was like, What do I know? Plumbing. Yeah. Hey Dad. Are
1: you still in Wilkes Bay?
0: Um, I'm in the general area, yeah.
1: General area, yeah. Um, yeah, I think we only played there once. Yeah. Sorry to, to answer it. was really yeah. funny. We showed up and there were two kids, like young kids, there, and we get out of the van and the kid goes, Your band sound like hard uh mad ball, and we <laughs> go uh no no we don't and he goes yeah nobody's gonna like you this town only likes mad ball and we were like i don't know why but you know how it is that's like the first person you see you're like oh this show's gonna be a nightmare like, oh god and uh yeah and uh then we played and it was a great
0: show oh, it was the, <laughs> it was that, that of, show was amazing that was an amazing yeah. show but yeah, I, I, can, I concur everyone in this area likes Madball. That is the truth.
1: Uh, you know, I, I, at the time, I never would have thought that Madball would be a band that people talked about 25 years later. But here, I mean, they're still a band. So, yeah. you know, people still talk about them, but not not sliding them at all. It just didn't seem, you know,
0: Congre- they didn't seem like a part of the scene to me. Uh, No, because they were on Roadrunner, and they were from New York, and they were very New York, biohazard, mm madball, that that whole thing. Um, But, yeah, they they were, but they they weren't. Yeah, I mean, they sounded hardcore, but I
1: didn't. I never had interactions with that scene outside of Sick of It All or Agnostic Mm -hmm. Front, you know. Um, But, uh, yeah. I mean, good on them. They they made a career out of it. Yeah, not a lot of people can do that.
0: I I still to this day don't know how. I think it was just they they hung around long enough. They they stuck to it long enough. There are some bands that do that. They can catch the waves and they work hard at it. And
1: I mean, they were always big in Europe.
0: Yeah, yeah, they were sick, always big in Europe. Sick of it all is like that. They're they're just you could count on them to be around.
1: You know, and they brought a lot of bands over
0: that ga- they gave exposure to, right?
1: Mm-hmm. And um, I think that was invaluable to those bands. Um, yeah, we only played with It all once.
0: Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Um, I remember.
1: <laughs> but we were always kind of oddballs. We always wanted to play with oddball bands that didn't sound like us. You know, we're like, let's put, you know, I kept putting, asking that rain for the sound rain, like the sound of trains be put on bills.
0: Mm -hmm. But that, you know, there's, that I think is what was cool about Louisville. Louisville has had such a a strange spread of different sounds. I mean, Mm -hmm. I know there was, people would call it the Louisville sound, but I think everybody sounded different in that town.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I think a lot of that too, they called, I mean, there were two different Louisville sounds, right? There was like the indie Louisville sound, but then in the punk hardcore Louisville sound, a lot of it had to do with the fact that like, you know, I would be in on the recording, Mm -hmm. you know? And I'd be (laughs) like, oh, your amps aren't good enough. Use our amps and, you know, yeah. Uh, But yeah, I think, um, I think uh, it it was, we
0: had a good time.
1: And, you know, a lot of people I love, you know, from that time.
0: I have to ask you, what was the name of that Chinese restaurant we got the uh, the, the vegan General Sao's Chicken at? Kim's. Do you remember? Kim's. She went out of business. Oh, it was so good. Oh, it was so good. And I think that night was the reason why Hans definitely didn't make it as the drummer of by the grace of God, because he had to order real chicken. He had to. <laughs> I need real. Uh, oh,
1: you know, I I got to be honest. He was a great drummer. He was just he, the vibe for his drumming. It wasn't his personality or anything. It was just the the drumming didn't quite sway the way those songs swayed. Right? Like, yeah. And it was that was really hard because we were like, we really talked about it. And we we're like, Hans is so great. We love him so much, and you know, uh, and it just was like, uh, but it's not quite i mean i don't think i think we went tried about four different drummers that were friends like jason from um um sweet cobra Mm -hmm. Uh, and suicide note he tried out and i love that guy and he's a great drummer but the, the it didn't have the right movement to it and then we got george from cincinnati and he he was close he was very close to it so mm-hmm. um and yeah the hardest thing is like trying people out because you want to everybody to play because you really like them and you think they're really good but yeah
0: you gotta you have to do what's right for the music and yeah. hans hans was uh, very william goldsmith inspired very mm-hmm. very busy very busy drummer very and busy and technical Mm-hmm. And for, yeah. an, for an untrained musician, I mean, we were in a, our band at that time. He was in uh, Jason Hudock and myself. Jay went on to be in an albatross and everything. Um, our band together was very much inspired by neurosis and guilt. But mm-hmm. we wrote maybe like eight movements and we would just jam them on stage. We We didn't even have a set list. We didn't have an album. Mm-hmm we would just go out and play and yeah. destroy. And he was perfect for that because yeah. he was really, he could be really loose when he wanted to be, he could be busy when he wanted to be. But um, yeah, he was, he, for a technical drummer, he was not, he had, I don't think he had more than one lesson. <laughs> you know, and that's
1: the thing I love about punk. It's like, you know, I didn't have lessons, you know, Rob never had lessons. I mean, none of us had lessons. We just, we, I mean, you know, bought some really crappy gear and <laughs> as kids and just went to shows. I mean, I would watch Dave Paho play in all yeah. these bands and kind of memorize his hand patterns and go home and try to figure I mean, I'm nowhere. I mean, David Paho is like a guy who understands music in a different way.
0: But we we talked about him last night too, funny enough, but go ahead. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but yeah, like so Paho could just you know, I, I grew up sort of roadieing for Maurice and, you know, he'd get up there with that flying V and just, you know, I'd get up, get on mine and go, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and learn as I went. Um, but yeah, like Jay, yeah. Uh, Hans was, uh, yeah, Hans was such a sweetheart. And you know, I I, I I haven't talked to his sister in a while, but we we are in touch. And yeah. uh, you know, that was really hard for her.
0: Oh yeah. Well, I know I was with her. It was that was that was a rugged that was a rugged few weeks. Mm-hmm. I couldn't even I couldn't go back to work or anything. It was yeah Man. you know, and, and like I was already used to like having friends pass because you know I I'm in the recovery spectrum so a lot of i still had a lot of friends who were still uh either like like falling off the wagon people who never stopped so a lot of people died around me in that vein but i mean he he was never he never did drugs yeah you know just went to a he he had a heart condition that he didn't he knew there was something up he just didn't like to go to doctors and went to see bane and that was it
1: yeah it's uh It's and this is like Louisville. I think like working class towns have a weird death curse, you know. Like, Louisville is just like anytime half the time Rob calls me, I'm worried that he's going to tell me about another friend, right? Like, uh, or you know, when I log on to social media, or you know, it's just you know, just losing so many people so young is it's it's so heartbreaking you know yeah um uh, some of them you never get over you know
0: i don't i don't think there is getting over uh yeah. the death of a close friend i mean that's just like losing a brother or sister it's just it's yeah. the same
1: it is and you know rob and i always talk about it like who's who's going to be first out of all our tightest friends really? mm-hmm. <laughs> who's going for and you know uh, we always joke that, like, yeah, well, it's not going to be us because you know that would require a certain kind of luck <laughs> <laughs> to not to not go out long <laughs> and suffering <laughs> to just be gone.
0: You know, in my in my closest circle, with Hans used to always say it, even like, you're going to be the first one to go because you're the nut. I was the I was the wild card of the pack and mm-hmm. you know cause they were, all, they all grew up straight edge. I was never straight edge. I always yeah. did stuff, you know, but it, I, then I went into recovery and I was fine, but he, uh, yeah, he, he and Jay would, if you were to ask them 25 years ago, who's the first one to go, it'll be Pete. It'll be Pete. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I, yeah, I think with us, it's like there's certain friends we had that we were like, you know, certain people from Endpoint, even though I was just like, I don't know how long they'll ever be around, but they persist and I'm thankful for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would, if we didn't die on the road with Endpoint, I think we were going to live forever because we were <laughs> so crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, just shooting bottle rockets in the van and, you know. <laughs> we tried to demo our trailers to see if we could get it to bounce if we went fast enough and just like i mean just at every angle we were trying to find ways to die you know like because <laughs> it was funny.
0: of course when you're in your 20s i mean you don't really think you're gonna get well, hurt who
1: dies yeah 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 unless they kill themselves it's like yeah yeah i mean i feel like this generation's gonna have a whole new understanding of death
0: I think they're gonna appreciate their lives in ways we didn't in our twenties. No, we're like, can I shove
1: this thing into my body in some way to freak people out? <laughs> you know? yeah, that was <laughs> how can how can I make everybody freak out and laugh? <laughs> I mean, we're all just lucky there were no cell phones.
0: If there were cell phones around when I was in my teens and early twenties, I I would not be we wouldn't be talking. I'd either be in jail. or I'd be canceled or there'd be be something there I'd be paying the Piper in some (laughs) way shape or form
1: uh uh yeah no uh definitely in jail for some of (laughs) now we're gonna do this thing you know put it on social media Uh, are
0: you are you ever going to put together some of your uh tour stories I know you sort of kind of alluded to maybe wanting to do something like that. You know, it's interesting because I, 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 I have wanted to, and I have like
1: a few hundred pages that I've written on and off about things. And For me, the thing is, it's like the stuff people want to hear about about with a book like that are would not be the things I really want to talk about but i I, so like yeah like years ago we put up a thing of like hey what old band story would you want to hear right because i know that if i do create something and publish it that that you know send it around to agents and stuff to see if uh, it's going to have to have those attractive stories of like you know uh sneaking Rob out in a bass drum case because the power lifter bouncers wanted to kill him, you know. And so we're like sneaking him out of the club and you know, um you know, um she, you know, defecating in each you know, our hands and throwing it at each other or whatever, you know. Yeah. Uh but then there's like the story of like how terribly depressed and lost we were, all were and uh that you know that's to me the interesting story is like those tales of growth but it's just hard to kind of put a narrative together with it that i've found that makes sense and i think you know my plan was to send out some proposals because with non fiction you can pitch it before you write it mm. and see see if i get somebody that says yes this seems really interesting and then write it and maybe that would be a motivator um, but yeah, it's I'm like that old guy at the table that we, you know when somebody asks for a story, I'll you know well, I, the year was okay. <laughs> uh, but writing it just seems a different thing because you know in a story like that, you want to write it a certain way, and yeah, I think Patty Smith did an excellent job with it, but she's a different kind of character than you know I you know I know Patty Smith and I'm Uh, You know, a lazy-eyed goof from Kentucky that, you know,
0: uh, (laughs) broke equipment. (laughs) Well, I mean, in the same token, uh, you read uh, Henry Rollins' Get in the Van. I mean, that is, uh, that's by no means, uh, you know, a well-written piece of work. It it works. Yeah, I mean. has journal entries. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you can do better than that. Well, you know, I mean,
1: I don't know. You know, I think a lot of, of Henry's fans would probably disagree with that, but uh, I, well, did, not... I did take exception with that book because like, nobody does. I mean, you know, if it's the 90s when I read that, and he was like, nobody yep. gets in the van and works for it anymore. And I'm like, just because your friends all made it and don't do that anymore, <laughs> there's <laughs> literally thousands of vans and bands right now playing you know, some of the same clubs you did. Yep. And, uh, but now I kind of find myself sometimes going, you think touring's tough now, you know, yeah. kid, you, you have cell phones.
0: That's the thing. The right. best, the best we had back then was uh, those dialers that you bought from radio. Shed. <laughs> the dialers <laughs> you put the crystal in.
1: I have, a. Uh, on the the manuscript I was working on, I have a whole thing on like all of the, the illegal things you did because you were poor. You know, yeah. there's like, you know, the stealing of major label uh, FedEx numbers. Yeah. Uh, like, God, Jimmy, world's number went around. I knew people that shipped beds across countries <laughs> or uh, across the state, you know, the, the states and on that number or like people would cir- circulate at t card numbers you had the yeah. dialers you know shaving down pennies to jam into uh, meters so you have unlimited parking in cities uh yep i oh got what else uh the coke machine thing salt water and coke machine yep you know and I, I actually after I wrote it I put a note on there like check statute of limitations <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think for most of that stuff, it's seven years.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But some of them are like, you know, maybe they're federal, certain things.
0: The dialers were.
1: Yeah, so that I don't know what that statute is. I don't know if federal has a – I'm no – I don't have no lawyering.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I just (laughs) – you I didn't study, study, study maritime law at the uh, University of Arthur <laughs> Treacher's? <laughs> no, no, sir. <laughs> now I'm just the
1: man here in front of this jury. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I have recently been, you know, in the last few years. This is kind of a tangent. Sorry. No, it's uh, all right. We, I got a the really great lawyer, really great guy, and uh, he helped us, you know, sort of take care of some of our rights issues to our music uh, to bring it all home, which has been is, is really that, nice.
0: Is that how the uh, the by the grace of God back catalog kind of got consolidated on the two releases and, and reissued?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's not to say anything uh, bad about any parties, but you know we just felt like it was time to. Collect our things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for for everything we'll, we'll go. We got this now, yeah. Um, and it's why the the Bartstown Road Ugly Box we were able to get it remixed, and it'll be coming out this year. Oh my god! Yeah, Steve Evans remixed it. Oh my god! Uh, That's yeah. going to sound thick. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's not going to sound as thick as is like maybe further because when we recorded it. We were always really naive recording, like we were just like, "You're the guy with the knobs. We just show up in clay. We didn't, you know. I would say, "Oh, turn this up, move this." I didn't know much. Yeah. Um, so you know, Bob is great for what he did, but you know, he was like, "Oh no, I've got two mics on each cabinet, so you don't, you don't need to double track, right?" And we we're like, "Oh, yeah, that's handy." I didn't even, you know, there's all kinds of things I didn't even know you intonated a guitar back then. right so there's all kinds of (laughs) intonation problems on all those older records but um uh you know so like it didn't have the double guitar tracks like bartender ugly box is just kyle and duncan Mm. and very little overdubs um
0: but uh now i will scrub this from the episode if 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 it could get anybody in trouble but did you or did you not take off with the master tapes to Bardstown ugly box.
1: No, I didn't because um it was it was never I mean all the master tapes that wasn't a thing that ever got questioned. I had them all to everything yeah, I ever okay. did.
0: Because I remember you...
1: for Catharsis because we couldn't afford it. Oh, okay. <laughs> we recorded we recorded Catharsis for like $500. We were too poor to like buy a reel, so we rented it. And okay. that's a record that everybody's like I wish that could be remixed and I'm like yeah I wish catharsis could be remixed <laughs> too man so we have not gotten we haven't gotten any offers on the endpoint stuff really mixed or re-released yeah, yeah no no offers I think you know I don't think we made it as a legacy band
0: I I, I find know? that very difficult to believe especially like well i guess growing up in this area was vastly dissimilar to the rest of the world because endpoint was a big deal here
1: well you know i think we were a live band i think that's where you got the you got it you know mm-hmm. like uh the recordings were always really bad except for the last record i think that one was pretty decent but yeah
0: then that, that um, sounded really good but like i remember yeah, I, pulling my hair out trying to find a copy of idiots like yeah uh, <laughs>
1: yeah yeah and all those i mean we have the reels for in a time of hate aftertaste and the last record and nothing else just we couldn't afford reels
0: i remember you showing me the masters to everything and i i i didn't ask you then but i, I had it in my head like i'll bet you he just stole those
1: <laughs> no but i i was very um after we recorded bars and ugly box I was informed that you should do that. So when we recorded the "By the Grace of God" stuff, I always made sure to take the reels home. Mm-hmm. And some of them are in the archives now at uh, the University of Louisville's library, part oh, of their cool. archive system. Uh, <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, like uh, in those bardstown ugly boxes, they, those that was Albini's, you know, Studer with a two-inch tape. So these three <laughs> giant reels that I had to ship to be digitized so that Steve could work on it and he did I mean he gave us a great deal and he did a really good job he was very patient as he always is I mean just I would work with Steve on anything Uh, Steve Evans, you
0: know he's just he's such a good person everything I like I like everything he does too I mean he he does a great job yeah I mean
1: just you know I mean, the, as soon as I heard progression, the demo for the 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 cassette or whatever for progression, mm-hmm. after you know Daryl sent it to me after they recorded it, and I was like, okay, that's where
0: we're recording. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's... I think I think for that time <clears throat> period, progression through unlearning had the best sound on a hardcore album, like ever. To yeah, that, yeah. What a sound! Well, it's really
1: funny because uh, when the cd promos daryl sent me one and because there was a time where they were they had asked me if i wanted to to join mm-hmm. Snapcase, case but i, I kind of passed uh and luckily because i got dustin uh, and yeah. he, he was great um but uh but like yeah i i, I remember putting it in my cd player and writing to work and uh and then like you know Daryl and I were talking, and he was like, what you think, man? I was like, well, I think the songs kind of sounded the same.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But then I realized that my CD player had been stuck on repeat. So it was just caboose. <laughs> and, you know, like, I don't know why I didn't pick up on that. I was just like, God, these songs. I mean, there's another breakdown, just like the first one <laughs>
0: And Caboose starts with that that drum pattern in the beginning that da 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 da, da, da. like are they yeah. going to do that in every song? <laughs> I know, like, like
1: I don't know, I you know because I'm riding my bike across town, so I'm probably not really paying that much attention. <laughs> I just you know he had a good laugh at that. I was just like I oh, am
0: sometimes a little airbrained. <laughs> <laughs> One thing we didn't touch on then, <clears throat> nerd, when you started. uh, like issuing some of your own music nerd rock records mm-hmm. right yeah Now there was the uh kind of like all the odds and sods guilt stuff that had the last mm-hmm. seven inch which the fact that the the last guilt seven inch didn't have a wider release that always unnerved me so that i was glad you had done that but um that that didn't last very long did it
1: no um Andy and I started it with a guy named Bill but he tapped out very early cuz he was just like oh, this I'm not signing on yeah uh, I got too much going on but um we had big plans like uh, and then I went to grad school and Andy started doing sound for good riddance and you know I said look I can't I can't focus on this right now I'll, I give the label to you Andy Mm -hmm. Run as you see fit. And he said, I'm going on tour and put it in boxes and then put it away. And actually, like a couple years ago when by the grace of God played our last show in Louisville. Not our last show, but you know, yeah, uh, the last time we played, uh, I went over to Anthony's. He's like, Oh my god, I cleared out my shed. Look what I found. And it was all the all that stuff. So I had like suddenly had a new bundle of the Aussie Lake uh at at the in splits, yeah. that had never been distributed, and all the stuff we released I had copies of uh and I was just like, yeah, we were we had stuff planned we had you know we had talked to all our friends and they were willing to we were gonna do a comp with all these big bands, and the thing with the label is you know. It, it takes money, <laughs> yeah, and time. And even if we had all the money, we didn't have the time.
0: Yeah, especially if you have, you know, your school and and you're playing music still to any capacity. I mean, that's record labels go. Business people run record labels for a reason. And it'd be nice to divorce the business from it, but
1: and yeah, no, like, and some of them do it ethically. Yeah. And do it well, and that's great, you know. Like, but yeah, make no mistake, Ian McKay is a businessman, right? Sure, he is a guy that you know, you know, when Fugazi would want to go to a bigger practice space, he would break down the budget to them of how much to the penny it would cost, and they would say, "Okay, we'll keep practicing in this basement then." Yeah. Um, but like, you know, uh, you know, he's a businessman that that also believes in community. Yeah. Um. And he, that's a rare thing. It's not every, I mean, look at Touch and Go. They were like the greatest label in America for so long. And then, you know, he made one wrong decision. He thought that digital music would be a fad and he didn't retain the rights to everyone's MP3s or whatever. And then just realized, came in one day and said, Hey guys, I did the numbers and uh We'll be out of business by the end of the month so this is our last week and just there is the end of except for reprints and limited things one yeah, of the greatest is. labels and you know with my, with my publishing company i still do it pretty with a pretty punk rock ethic right like i still pay uh you know uh 50 right and i still listen to the authors and i'm still working hard that way but it's it's not a punk rock thing right it's it's you know i may be one of the only punks except for steve von till that was you know <laughs> done anything on it um i am releasing a book by tobias carroll who came from the scene really uh, yeah and that's that's I, I should get the galleys for that on monday but luckily with that, the school is now uh, supporting it. So I get some – not a lot, but I get a little bit of money uh, from the school to help with operating costs so I can give, you know, support to authors when I
0: – is, it, is it still like kitchen sink, though? Or are you still like running it from home and, and all of that? It, it is still essentially –
1: A one person operation. I have an editor. For a little while, I had a a crew, but with an unpaid position, it's hard to retain because I don't get paid from it, you know. And so we had a poetry editor briefly who was great, but they had a kid, so they stepped down. And then a fiction editor that, you know, is great. uh, um, And a social media person who's really good. Um, So I don't really do the socials um, and I've stopped editing the books. I just kind of, um, you know, vet some of the manuscripts that come through and from agents or writers I know, and then um, she will work on it. And I, it, because I'm more of a line editor, so it takes me forever to get through a manuscript where um, she's more of a big picture you know she has a lot of experience with agents and
0: when people don't and understand that. The, the difference between the two i mean my first job out of school i was a copy editor for an ad agency and like that's 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 even less than line editing you know <laughs> yeah yeah
1: yeah proofreading is that uh, and i always have to explain that so i teach a publishing class and my students come in and and the first few weeks it's on reading interviews of publishers and talking about publisher procedures and different schools of editing. And they got they're always surprised. They think editors just check the per, you know, copy. And that no, these are the people that create the identity of, you know, they curate an identity for the publishing house, right? And yeah. um <clears throat> And so they read these things and they go, well, this editor seems really like a bully. And it's like, yeah, yeah. Because in the in the big five, you know,
2: <laughs>
1: everyone's livelihood depends on it being the best product. So, yeah, know, there's no handholding here. I mean, they can be good. There's a relationship they have to keep, but they'll call bullshit when they see it. You
0: know? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And
1: And that's hard, you know that's hard to, that's the hardest part of being an editor. It's, it's you know, when I have to tell a person like, eh, I love this book, except for you really need to change these things. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and some authors are really receptive and some get really sort of, you have to be more careful
0: when you walk them through these edits and, uh, you know, content changes. Say I, I need somebody like that in my life who could just be like, <sighs> Nope, this, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, instead, you just get the blank rejection, right? Exactly, yeah. Right, that's, yeah. That's basically um, what it comes down to. Yeah,
1: and that's that's a numbers game. Like everybody, my students go, oh, I submitted some things and they turned me down, so I guess, and I'm just like, oh, no. You know, like I was on a, I was a guest editor for a, a literary magazine and I got a submission from Stephen King's agent and I turned it down because it didn't fit the magazine. Mm-hmm. You know and i was just like if i can turn down stephen king you know anybody can be turned down just
0: more yeah, often more often than not you're going to yeah, be turned down yeah.
1: you're going to get you know i tell them to build build a spreadsheet and i go send out five submissions and then when you get a rejection send out five more
2: mm-hmm.
1: and just keep sending out and just keep a track record because you know where you've published, you know, who said, no, you know, who gave you notes. And I'm just like, go through that. Every time you have something, you know, apply to your first five big ones, then, you know, just kind of move through it and you will find a home. I mean, not everybody there's as somebody who's read a lot of (laughs) unsolicited work, there is some (laughs) stuff out there that, (laughs) that probably will never see a home. And, you know, those are the people that get angry when you pass on the work. You know? Yeah. Uh, I remember the day after I found out a friend of mine committed suicide or the day of actually, uh, I got an angry email from somebody who had su- submitted work and he said in it, I hope, you know, everybody, you, you and everybody, you know, die. <laughs> and I just wrote him back and I so said, yeah, you because know, usually I don't. and But I was just like, you know, man, I'm taking exception to this email because you saying you know you say this and I was like, but I read your work. it just wasn't a fit for us and it should go somewhere where you know it it where you would have an editor who loves it and heralds it and moves it forward and and I said, What well, it's not a pass it's it's not a no it's a you know like I released it back into the world for you and I was like, but on, more to the point like you don't know what we go through I don't get paid for this job. I do it out of love and you say this and it just so happens I've read it on a day where I just found out my friend had hanged himself. Mm -hmm. And I go, so, and I was like, in your case, if I could turn this into a teachable moment, editors remember your name. Yeah. Right. Like if you're just one of the millions, they're not going to remember it. But if you stick out in any way, they're going to remember you. (laughs) And that's not good. Yeah. You don't want to be remembered unless it's for greatness. And, uh, and he's just like, you know, he wrote me. He's like, I'm sorry. I'm just, you yeah, know, gave me his reasons. And he was like, but I just didn't, you didn't give me notes. And I was like, man, when you get notes, that's a rarity. You know, yeah. like, that means an editor is stopped. They think it's close enough and they want to give you some love. And I was like, but I'll reread it. And I kind of then did and gave him the reasons, right? Mm. And, uh, you know, he thanked me, but it was kind of like, you know, That's what i always tell my students it's like look if they pass on your work it's not personal they're getting hundreds of submissions they're just moving through the queue trying to find that thing they know is going to work
0: yep just get through it man you know and uh i think i think everyone including myself in my youth i don't believe this now but everybody thinks that their first novel is that great american novel like and it's not it's just not it's not it's not, I mean, God bless
1: that. Um, so when I first started trying to write, um, I still have the notebook. I mean, the stuff is awful. The stuff is, I mean, like sometimes I'll pull out a poem from it and I'll read it at like, a, like my students will have a reading night where they you know, have an open mic at the end and the faculty will get up and do stuff and I'll read one of my bad poems, right? Mm-hmm. For example, uh, the one I talk about the most, light bulbs of blood, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and I even like you know as a punk put LBOB next to it because that's you know what a kids on the street would probably call it when this masterpiece was released. It, <laughs> I had written a preface to my collection, you know, as a kid, and and it was just like it it really seemed to believe like I really believed in my heart of hearts. that I had something and the world was going to see it. You know? like it. <laughs> it was going to be recognized either now or in, and. Uh, man, that kind of confidence would be great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now I'm just like, you know, I have a book coming out, everybody. Sorry. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's like apologizing um,
0: I remember trading poems with you when I'd stayed with you and uh, you'd read a few uh, you'd read a few of mine and you looked at me and you were like these are real dark <laughs> that's that <was> the only <laughs> thing you said to me <laughs> you intently read everything I had on me and you just looked at me and went these are very 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 dark <laughs> and that's like thank you i probably a
1: compliment you know like i i'm sure that was a compliment because it didn't it it didn't feel negative yeah i didn't go these are too dark no no and uh do do you have work out there on submission now
0: uh nothing nothing as of late um Mm -hmm. everything uh, the last time i was published in anything it's got to be like four years ago Mm -hmm. and like
1: having yeah, horror is having a nice moment now, so it might be good now, to try to get back out there.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I I I have I have a lot that I could send off into the world, but it's I get too precious if I read it, if, if I just remember that I'd re- I'd written it and send it off, that's one thing. But there's I always have to I got to read it one more time to make sure well i think that's okay i think that's just doing your you know your shopkeeping because but you know but when i read it then i get fucking precious about it and i can't
1: i'm like oh it's not ready
0: it's not re- ready. Oh, but
1: <laughs> see i think that's the beauty of like you know putting like this book here i haven't i haven't opened this old first book since you know probably it came out and getting back into it with learning stuff and, and also just having time to to get away from my you know my own belief in it I can edit it more you know precisely mm-hmm. and and really work on the construction of it in a way that is meaningful that where I maybe couldn't because I was a little too in love with it you know the project at the time um, and you know I always remind people that Kafka, Kafka's last request was that Max Brode not publish any of his work. And Max said, you know, I won't do that. You know, I'm going to. And, uh, you know, it, and most of what we have of Kafka's was never meant to see the light of day. Yeah. You know? And here we are reading the castle or the trial and talking, you know, dissertations about about it and articles and we're still talking about kafka and he thought it was all just not there yeah yeah very true yeah. <laughs> um so you know i think it's that fine balance of like is is as good as i'm going to get it without holding on to it forever
0: and that being having the ability to discern whether or not it is time to let it go is is an ability I don't believe I fully have, <laughs> you know
1: you... here's my thing if if <laughs> Twilight can be an international bestseller
0: mm-hmm. you can do <laughs> your stories are probably fine you know? yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah like yeah and, and, and it, like it's not a matter of wanting to be the next anything or to mm-hmm. be or to like get paid from it or any of that it's just. I want that kid, who was the kid I was at age, what was I, nine years old, when I read books of blood, something like that, nine or ten, way too young, to have read it. But what are you going to do? And I, I want, I want to reach that same kid. That's that's who I'm looking for. Uh, the mass market, all that. I'm not looking for them. I, if they like me, awesome. I'm not going to turn you away. Mm-hmm. But who I'm looking but, for is that kid. You know,
1: I think that really ties everything together because that is why I started playing music. Mm-hmm. I mean, you'll find all the endpoint interviews where I go, you know, like people like, oh, do you, your band's getting bigger? Do you, yeah, that, that, what are your ambitions? And I said, you know, if I just, if one person tells me that my music meant something to them and it somehow improved or changed their life, um, that's all I wanted. And and you know, I have had people say that and it, you know, it makes all the all the bullshit, right, so much worth it, right? Mm-hmm. And when people connect to your your work in that way, the way you did to to Clark Barker or I did to Clyde Barker or you know, we did to like whatever black flag or the clash. Mm-hmm. <sighs> You know that is there's nothing better than that i mean that plus a lot of money always great but like you know the money is not the motivating factor there it's nor should it be community right Mm -hmm. and again going back to your thing of like you do writing alone but we don't right we do writing the split self of who we are as the writer
0: but also who we are as the reader right that makes sense that makes a lot of sense (laughs) there's this great
1: old book by julian Jaynes called the origins of consciousness in the bicameral mind completely scientifically inaccurate you know the sort of the thesis of it is that you know people we have a split mind of spirit right and Mm -hmm. that people who we consider insane are often communing with you know god Right. right? And so they're prophets, right? And we used to see them as prophets. And I think that, you know, there could be the writer in the bicameral mind because we are both reader and writer, you know, we're both wanting to be nurtured and wanting to contribute
0: to the conversation of literature. So it's almost a, a an inherently l- uh, liminal state to be, uh, to inhabit uh, the mind of a writer.
1: And that is the, That is the point of most
0: possibility, right? That,
1: that, you know, uh, in horror, right? That 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 flirting with the abject is everything that writes what we do. It's everything that reinforces the good, and but it's also that great place where it's it the slippage happens, and Mm -hmm. there's potential for anything can happen. You know, like um, anything could get strange and note can switch to it,
0: you know, the minor. That's exactly it. I mean, yeah. authors like Kath Koja. I mean, these mm-hmm. just this absolutely gorgeous mind and and completely absurd. Everything was completely absurd in her work. It's unbelievable yeah. to uh, to believe that someone like that could put out something that intense and and com- completely warped and it got published
1: wow Fuck yeah <laughs> there are so many books that i go yeah you know, and, and and it's lost on younger people because you're like let me put this into historical context why this is so radical to have come out right and they're just you know but like yeah like um you know, when you look at uh, uh, uh Master and Margarita, something that never saw the light at day until it was smuggled out of Russia, mm-hmm. um, you know, like the fact that he probably would have been killed for that uh, had he not had somebody that really liked his plays, right? Mm-hmm. So he had somebody in the the, the sort of administration that. Enjoyed his playwriting, so they were just like, you know, he'd get reported. They'd say, "Let just bury that. Don't, and we'll we'll be fine." You know, uh is remarkable because yeah. when you read it, it's like, you know, have you have you read that book? Yes. Yeah, it, it it's like the the whole Jesus narrative, and then the whole Satan coming to Moscow, and uh, yeah, it's just so much fun and gets so strange. Or Heart of the Dog, which he did too, where the, the surgeon puts the pituitary gland of a human into her yeah into a dog into <laughs> but it's a it's a proletariat <laughs> <laughs> He's just like yelling at the doctor for being bourgeoisie and <laughs> the doctor hates it the doctor hates his creation
0: and i Amazing. what's what's interesting about that is that like that's the, that's the modern the more modern modern prometheus
1: Right, right, yeah, yeah. The pr- Prometheus story, which is told and told again, of you know,
0: <laughs> I mean, we, we got it, we got it with Mary Shelley, and then you have it over again.
1: And the sad thing is, is like so many of those early things, like well, you know, not this is Prometheus, but you know, uh, if you look at Lovecraft, if you look at uh, Dracula, if you look at Frankenstein, it's all so terribly racist and right. so trapped in the fear of otherness. Uh, uh, that that it's like, you know, kind of explaining, like I taught a book by uh, Victor, Victor Lavelle, uh, Ballad of Black Tom, which is a reenvisioning of Horror at Red Hook by Lovecraft, which is his most just like, you know, just his most racist, it's peak racism. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and they had to read both and i had students that were just like some of my grad students, like i refuse to read this and i'm like look and in order to understand the power of what Lovecraft's doing here you actually have to read this and it's poorly written it's the worst lovecraft too yeah and uh you know and my students were like oh my god lovecraft is terrible i'm like a lot of his writing is terrible <laughs> yeah you know, like influential and you know, there was a time in my life where I thought it was like, whoa, like oh, I you know, know.
0: I loved it. I loved it. I didn't yeah. get enough of it. And I still have all of it. Mm-hmm. Because and it you're still moments.
1: With... Yeah. But you've taken what's good of Lovecraft and applied it to you know
0: these other things, right? And we've seen a lot of that recently, which is great. You know, oh it's it's um, such a shame that Lovecraft Country didn't get picked up for a second season. Like I I loved <laughs> I, I didn't get to read the source material i'm sure that mm-hmm. was fantastic as well but what a great spin you know to, to kind i think of take so it back yeah i think i think the problem was just, for me what i i think
1: was the problem is the consistency of that mm-hmm. narrative it, how they did it like um you would get the first episode which you're like whoa this is going to be so great and then like a dud of an episode and then like one episode that felt like i was watching the goonies you know like, yeah and you've got all these great actors and stuff. And uh
0: rest in yeah, peace, Michael yeah. K. Williams. Man, Omar, Omar, man, <laughs> Omar's coming. Rest Everybody, peace, run! Omar. Oh man! But that, like, yeah, I, I could see with the inconsistencies, but I just the fact that you know it was it, it was getting taken away from. They're taking the good things about. This out and out bigot, his his creations and and making it, you know, like taking it away from him almost.
1: I I appreciate that. And I would hope that he's rolling in his grave. Um, Yeah. And I had a grad student who was like going to, you know, uh, one of the other readers that was an outside reader on his dissertation was like, oh, you have to have Lovecraft in this. And he was like, oh, I've never read him. You know, I'll, I'll add him. And I kind of pulled him aside and I was like, I don't, I don't think that's going to jive with what you're doing here. And because he was, it, his is very much like looking at magical realism and, and, and oppression and race. and And he's like, why? And I was like, just Google Lovecraft's cat and it'll probably tell you everything you need to know. And he did. And he's like, God, that's really depressing. And I was like, yes. Yeah, The man was not just subtle racist He was full blown racist
0: Oh my god those letters that he'd Written and oh
1: my god what a terrible Person (laughs) But you know I mean a lot of our you know Pound was a Fascist yeah but You know his work his Contribution to the world of letters Is Unmistaken and I just assume Most of the modernists were probably Bigoted you know Unfortunately Um, yeah.
0: I'm, and I'm Faulkner, you know,
1: yeah, yeah, and so you know, you have to pull out, you know, like I had a student re- refuse to read Uh Outer Dark by Cormac McCarthy because it was dude lit, it was masculine, it was too masculine, too dude lit. Um, and and I, I just I had to talk to them and say like look i understand that absolutely it has been appropriated to be like dude lit but i can guarantee you most of the dudes that think they that that claim to like cormac mccarthy have probably only read one book and it was probably all the pretty horses or whatever right like uh
0: they didn't read the road
1: yeah or or, you know blood meridian or or meridian yeah and and outer dark is such a dark poetic text and i was like just read it and i tell you what if you hate it absolutely hate it i will buy the book from you (laughs) right so you get your money back and they came back and they were like okay this book is brilliant thank you for you know i was like yeah man like i i wouldn't i wouldn't do that to you look at my syllabus (laughs) 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 like i'm not gonna just like it's not going to be like, all right, now you're going to read him and then you're going to read Infinite Jest and then you're going to read American Psycho and uh, yeah, all dudes, man. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's all whoever wrote were dudes.
0: Um, <laughs> I mean, I, as much as I love Brett Easton Ellis too, I, you know, there's, um, there, there's there's room for uh, there's room for growth there.
1: But there is and yeah, yeah. You know, he and Donna Tart went to school together at Bennington. Really? Yeah. Yeah, God. with a couple other people that were sort of right around that time too. I wonder what that scene was like. My God, <laughs> there was an article about it. Um, very interesting. You know, um, and I think part of that might have had something to do with her book the secret history like you get that vibe in it a little bit of insiders outsiders
0: mm-hmm. yeah well he that's from... just <laughs> me
1: speculating
0: yeah well he he did come from affluence if i'm not mistaken right and, and... well
1: most of those young writers did yeah. yeah yeah they weren't like the some of the beats i mean a lot of there's still a that's one thing that they don't talk about a lot of in the lit world is class, you know, they're happy to talk about race, gender, sexual orientation. But when you, you start talking about class in a way, like where if you're not a person of color, right, if you're like a oh, somebody that comes from Pittsburgh and grew up in a coal mining family, and you criticize class, it gets shut down in a different way. And mm-hmm. And um, that's not saying like, oh, kind of white exceptionalism kind of right. thing. It's just like, it's it's harder to hear it, I think, from because it's still a very, I would say it's still a very class-based system. Like editors in the big houses, for example, you can't, you have to volunteer for a long time as an editor, assistant editor, and
0: not get paid. I could never have done that, you know? how could yeah you would have to <clears throat> from you'd have to come from some kind of money yeah, you'd have to and have some still kind of bus tables mm-hmm.
1: yeah um so it is still you know and it's pretty openly talked about in critiques of, of the system of just like yeah i mean we got to open up some doors here and but it is that is a particularly difficult door to open um
0: so who's exciting you now than literary speaking in the literary sphere?
1: Oh, gosh. Oof. Um, it's always something, you know, there's always something new. Um, I, I loved I, I loved Matt Bell's last book. Um, I thought that was just really beautiful. Sarah Rose Etter put out her first book called Book of X,
2: mm-hmm. and it
1: won the Shirley Jackson Award. That was an excellent book. Brilliant. Um, it, uh, I, I actually just published two books that are really great, The Apology from Christian to Bordeaux. Um, and Christian's, you know, um, Christian is a, a sort of a student descendant of um, uh, Saunders, he, uh, George Saunders. So he, he has that kind of cultural critique in him. Uh, and then... Begat Who Begat Who Begat Who Begat by Marcus Pachter is a collection of short stories with really tight sentences and strange, you know, family dynamics in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I also posted, uh, published a collection of poems from Ava Hoffman, a trans writer. It, and it's, I mean, that thing is just selling. It's so, it's such a good book. It's like a hybrid uh, image text collage. And it, like, I, I I read one of her poems in the fanzine, which is curated by uh, Blake Butler. Uh, uh, it's a great, it's a great magazine online. But I, I read her poems in there and immediately wrote her and said, Do you have a manuscript? And she said, Not yet. And I waited. And two years later i got one and and i just as soon as i opened it up it felt like i you know like you know when they discover some sort of artifact and it glows in the sun you know it's just (laughs) radiate dangerous manuscript and i was just like yes let's do this Um, and to continue in the, the mythos of it um she lost the actual original document so all she had left was a pdf so all we we could barely edit it and everything we did had to be done in photoshop oh my god yeah. what that's a night that's a nightmare that's i know <laughs> <it>, yeah <laughs> that's why my stuff is about you know it's on a removable drive a cloud drive uh, i have a service that backs up all my drives <laughs>
0: all literature all of it
1: yes make sure to put it on a cloud too though
0: yeah i have i have two different clouds okay. i have two different i have i have the my apple cloud and the google one
1: i have a the google cloud the google cloud um and then i have a service called the backblaze that's mm-hmm. like six bucks a month and it just keeps if ever i lose all my hard drives it's there and i can pay for a hard drive to be shipped to me with all the data
0: Oh, wow, that's excellent.
1: Yeah, I have to look into that. After after I lost some data one year, I was like, okay. Luckily, my story survived, but I lost so many pictures. Uh,
0: Yeah, I think losing my work would hurt more unless it were pictures of my child. Then I'd be like, okay. (laughs) I was like, I misheard that at first. I was like, (laughs) Uh, yeah,
1: Henry Rollins once said, I'd rather lose a finger than to lose my work uh that was one good Henry roland's quote
0: yeah i mean listen I, I wasn't trying to like burn the guy down when i was critiquing uh getting the vague, no, no, no. Vague, but you no, know that was it,
1: young writing
0: yeah it was young writing and you can you I can like really tell i feel pain because it reminds me i'm alive it, it's like okay yeah I, I we all read nietzsche we all know what's going on like <laughs>
1: and and at that time in that writing too you can almost imagine him like doing his yes you know like I feel pain I know I'm alive yeah yeah
0: (laughs) I was living in a shed in my buddy's backyard yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah.
1: moving his head and sweat flying off get some yeah Wrapping that Mike Core while he writes.
0: Oh God, yeah, I love it. But I love it. Uh, I, yeah, no, I. I have yeah, a soft spot for all. Yeah, yeah. Well, my soft spot for for Henry Rollins be like really it has to do with my war mostly.
1: Life changing record.
0: Yeah, that's to record. me. That's like you wouldn't have neurosis or guilt. No, no.
1: I mean. That was a record that like, I'd already had a bunch of punk and I was like, yeah, punk, you know? But I was a kid and I was still like trying to figure out my place. But when I put on, when my work came out and I put on that first song and he does that first scream, I was just like, I mean, it was a noted like, rest of my life signed Duncan Barlow. <laughs> like, it was just, yeah. And that, I mean there's records, right? You have those benchmarks of like this record changed my life in this way in this one. You know, like when I first heard Portishead, mm-hmm. I was like, uh, I don't know what they're doing, but I I love this. <laughs>
0: you know? I'd never heard of Trip Hop, you know. No, I don't think any of us had until Portishead came out. And then and then we all got into massive attack. And that was like, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, I mean, I knew people who were into the massive
1: attack and all of that, and some of the other bands before, but like, yeah, yeah, I, I, didn't, you know, I was just, like I said, it just has to fall into my lap, or I may not find it.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think uh, my, my doing my turn at college radio probably helped mm. me out a lot in that department as well, because you get to, you get exposed to so much, or just college in general. I got exposed to so much more and that you know first two years in school than i did for the first 18 otherwise you know Mm -hmm. because you just meet you're in a different town you're everybody everybody's coming from all these different angles and Mm -hmm. i think it's amazing that you're kind of curating the minds of these kids that I would I would have loved to have hung out with when I was in when I was their age in college you know so you're, you're almost getting the best of it
1: I am um and I think there's a guarded uh, distance they keep from me because I'm you know I don't fit the mold of the academic as you know many of my colleagues do um they kind of I think the students are kind of like I get you but not totally you know and then I always, always the, the ones that are certified you know the outcasts they go mm-hmm. you know like every now and then the kids will go tell me about your bands or whatever like it's it's rare here other schools in bigger cities they always Google me. either here you know just the other day they were like so you're in bands can you tell us about your bands and i was like all right very limited <laughs> i was like you can google if you want to know things but i'll take a few minutes and talk about uh
0: and uh you know but like you don't just sit down and be like all right let's start with slam deck <laughs> <clears throat> or like
1: just talking shit you know like okay there was this motherfucker <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, and usually they want to know who the most famous person you know is right like they're just like ooh do you know anybody famous it's like well yeah but like i know him outside of that context right like yeah. They became famous, but I knew, you know, we were sleeping on each other's floors back in the day. Or, um, but yeah, like, and it's just like, I don't know, with music, I, I I think like, and I think what you cue in here is like, we're always looking for the next thing. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was like, I always was more interested in where I was going than where I was. Um, which has its drawbacks, like you know, sometimes it's hard to appreciate the moment. Uh, but you know, uh, and I try to take a little more time now to to sit in the moment, right? Like with Lega Grace God at this point, we're not trying to like innovate or anything, you know. We're just like, let's play some cool fast music, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, you know, but with endpoint, we were like growing and trying to change and you know experimenting, and I would guilt, you know, some of the same. Um, uh, but you know,
0: people don't always love that. So see, that's uh, what I, know, al- there's- that's what I aligned with. I mean, you know, I, 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 as much as I appreciated, like that, the whole like Neo youth crew thing that happened and all of that, like, mm-hmm. I just, it sounds great. It's fun to dance to. I like singing along, but the the bands I'm gonna remember when I'm 80 they're going to be the ones that were trying something you know
1: yeah and i think you know like for me i think that's how i grew up but i also understand the disappointment you know for me like the disappointment between conquest for death by the necros to tangled up was you know it was there right it was just like yeah ah, you know, because like i
0: same thing I with kinda, ssd you know
1: Yeah. And for what it's worth, I think How We Rock is a good ACDC sounding record now. Yeah. But at the time, it was just like, why are you guys, why is everybody doing this now? Like, why is, you know, why doesn't DeCruyzen put out another DeCruyzen? And why doesn't, and, but now, you know, then you kind of understand when you get a little older, um, and that you're trying new things because it's exciting and new for you and, um, but I think now, I think endpoint always did a good job of like even when we grew that our sets were like one song from In a Time of Hate, one song from this, one song from that. Like we always tried to keep the set moving, but to, I think to sometimes kids felt like they only got one, two, three songs they liked, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I do like it when bands reunite and they just play a record right because yeah. it's like they're like okay we're reuniting and we are going to play this record straight through right and not just a band like i i feel like you know that does that all the time right like kind of i think when you see mags it's just been Age of quarrel for
0: 30 years or whatever since but, asia since asia quarrel pretty much yeah yeah i mean except best
1: wishes there was that time where they tried to do that but like and, and i know they they have records after that people love but i i anytime i've seen them it's just like here's age of Quarrel front to back yeah uh, but then like you know when bands do like failure doing that tour where they're like okay we're going to do three nights and each night is a different record yeah um and i was real sad that they canceled that but
0: because
1: <laughs> oh, i yeah i have
0: the box set right behind me i i yeah. always ken andrews is a genius but
1: oh yeah yeah um and guilt was heavily influenced by that band right like yeah you know but we we didn't have pedals <laughs> but yeah you know, we didn't we weren't going space rock but we really liked the melodies of those records oh yeah um yeah so i don't know i i meet i have a, a real a real special friend that i talk to and um and they, they come from a different you know time and kind of explaining contexts of things is always really interesting of like, oh man, yeah. Like, so at this time, in this time period, people were doing this thing and this other thing was happening and they're always so interested in it and kind of drawing comparisons to like their world where they grew up and uh, and those conversations are always really great because they're not like, I don't feel like I'm just sort of telling a tale of like, uh, yeah. Back in my day, but we're actually having a conversation about like the nature of of music and art as it you know changes and then kind of touches back yeah. on you know, things, right? And and the beauty of aging too is that like I could go back and listen to things that I hated and see why they were great now, you know? Like oh yeah, like you know I'm watching like many of people that Peacemaker show, mm-hmm. right? And uh, it's hilarious. And I, oh, I hate love it hair. I hate hair metal. Like I hate that music. Right. Always have. But like enough to see enough came on last night in one mm-hmm. of the episodes. Yeah. And I was like, I didn't know who it was. You know, I was like, who is this? This is this. This singer's got a nice. It's got kind of like it sounded to me like what like bands like the Doughboys and stuff would later be doing. And and I looked it up and I was like. Oh yeah, I remember this band. They were ridiculous, right? Like, mm-hmm. and and I watched the videos, and I'm like, oh, these videos are painful to watch, but like the songs really aren't that bad. Like, if they had not marketed themselves as a hair metal band, you know, and had been more like James Addiction style, yeah, they probably would have had great success. But they they just did the whole cock rock thing, and I was just like, yep. well, that's why. <laughs> you know, how could you like that? <laughs>
0: like, it's a punk, you know like yeah you, like, you, know, you couldn't possibly. you couldn't possibly. Yeah, but,
1: but now I can go back <laughs> and go, okay, if I hear this song without having to look at whatever's going on on stage, this this song rocks.
0: This is a good song. well that that's the thing like uh, he was talking I don't think they played Cinderella on there, but he was talking about Cinderella and he said, see? Those dudes, those are real men because they weren't afraid to be women.
1: <laughs> I love that. I love it. And and I love that they took time with Hanoi Rocks on that show too. That made me very happy. The Hanoi Rocks was so exceptionally different because they were kind of doing like almost like what the replacements did. You know, yeah. they had this totally different sound that wasn't over produced and slick. It was like had a folk quality to it like a full metal quality not folk metal and i guess that's a misnomer but like a street like vitality to it yeah and uh and so when they they play that and they're talking about it it just kind of struck me of like yeah dude when you put it next to everything like Molly crew or you know, poison it, it does
0: seem more authentic absolutely and same thing with when i just had always had a soft spot for uh the singer of cinderella because he has such a brutal voice but like <laughs> they, they had songs and like i, I would you would have found me dead listening to cinderella when they were around but mm-hmm. now it's pretty it's pretty good it's pretty i can good. tell
1: you a band I, I never gave up on ac fucking dc
0: well well it's acdc i man. mean that's it's acdc they're an oi band
1: <laughs> yeah they're just like a rock band that plays the same rock song except for fly on the wall which was their sort of bad record in my opinion but mm-hmm. you know like to this day i could put on any acdc record and just rock my way through it just
0: AC, AC/DC and uh oh god who rose tattoo i mean those two bands um, oh, yeah. they they do the same thing constantly over and over again, but it fits it somehow it fits to me
1: there, you know, and I think there's some hardcore bands that do that, you know, and uh, and that's why they last right. They they Mm -hmm. can just bang out the same things. They're not trying to be more
0: than what they are. Right. Just Um, working like quality to the construction and presentation of the product
1: right right and it's like you know some people find that regressive or something um and it was never really something that was my interest is just to do something and do it well consistently but but i mean you know there's bands that do it and i think that's the world clearly has a place for it they're like the act yeah i feel like sick of it all is kind of the acdc of hardcore
0: (laughs) and that's that's one of their favorite bands yeah, it isn't it one of everybody's yeah it should be if it's if not yeah. it should be
1: yeah
0: but there, that going back to that show though i mean uh, yeah i wasn't a fan of that music when it was around but now i know it's a new band that does the theme song to uh, the show they're like some scandinavian hair metal band but uh, now mm-hmm. that that song's on my uh it's on one of my playlists <laughs> okay they have another
1: they had another new song from a band, and I actually looked it up. It was like some kind of trashy uh, metal band. Uh, I'll look it up. The Cruel Intentions, the song "Jawbreaker."
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I actually looked that up because I was like, "This song's pretty cool." And yeah. again, you look at the video, and you're like, "I gotta just... I should never have seen that. I should have just listened." Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's bands that they're ruined for me because of their videos, you know. I just can't get their videos out of my head.
0: Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're red Hot chili pepper videos from when I was young. And I was when I was a kid, I loved them because they still have Ugh. they still had punk cred, you know? And mm-hmm. then I I forget what video it even was, but it just it, it kind of killed it for me.
1: You know, they have been to me, I mean, I know they're like everybody I know that knows them is just like, they're really good people. They're really nice. They're really, mm-hmm. uh, But like, you know, I mean, I don't think uh, they put out enough music that annoys me to no end that, that I I forget about the first couple records. Right. And so, or first maybe three. And uh, so it's like, you know, when, uh, uh, Something like even from Mother's Milk, like you see me getting by, you see me getting high, knock me down. Mm-hmm. I forgot that that song is fucking great, you yeah. know, and I'd, I'd forgotten about it because of, you know, roller coaster or whatever, and, and that I've gotten for the last 25 years. But like when what we do in Shadows did a little mock of that, right? Yeah. I was like, oh, who is that? Oh my God, that's the Chili Peppers. I forgot that that record was actually
0: pretty great <laughs> yeah. incredible incredible like yeah. john frusciante at, at the height of his his burgeoning powers uh, you know and like they were just getting over the death of hillel slovak and there was a vulnerability to their antics which really didn't exist on the first couple releases because it was just a lot of young revelry and bravado but then Mm -hmm. Hillel passes and you know, they're thinking about things like rehab and And mortality and mortality comes into play. And that song specifically, you know, with the, the, the gospel refrain at the end Mm -hmm. and stuff. Oh my God. That was, that was a triumph for them. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, and I think, yeah, I think they, that record, um, I, to me, that's where they peaked. I thought the record after it was like a, got a little self indulgent.
0: Yeah, there were good um, songs, but it, as a whole, it it got it got it got Rick ruined, ruined by Rick Rubin, as Rick Rubin used to say about stuff. Oh, did ago. he do that record? Yes, he did. Yeah.
1: Okay. I just remember they rented that mansion and did a lot of like you know, experimentation on it.
0: Uh, and it was haunted. I don't know who engineered
1: it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah gotta have a good mythos right
0: exactly exactly and right. it was a
1: record named after magic right like a satanic crowley yeah right yeah blood
0: sex magic yeah you had that little element that thalamic element to it mm-hmm. but um yeah they were i think they were still trying to keep up with jane's addiction that's my that's my opinion you know uh, a record i did not like when it came out but like like
1: there was a time in in when I was living in Florida, and I was I'd eat at this restaurant a lot, and they play music, and sometimes somebody would be like on a '90s kick, and so I was like, you know, I'm going to listen to everything they play with an open ear, right? And some things didn't make it, right? Like some things, I'm like, this is still really terrible, mm-hmm. um, but like they played the second Pearl Jam record, which I didn't like, mm-hmm. and they played it front to back, and. uh And I remember Kyle from guilt really loved that record and I would get annoyed at him for playing it in the van or whatever. And, um, they played this record. I listened to it. I stayed there and listened to the whole thing and just kept getting refills. And, and afterwards I texted Kyle. I was like, Kyle, I heard, I think it's called like Ram or something. I don't remember. Versus. Versus. And I was like, Kyle, I just heard this front to back. It's a damn good record. And Kyle's reply was like, I have waited X amount of years for you to say this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and and you know, there that's a band that I I I wanted to like a lot because of their pedigree.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: <clears throat> of how much I loved Mother Love Bone and how much I, I loved mm-hmm. Green River. And I mean, yeah, do they, did they make good music? Yes, of course. I've yes. gone to, I've gone to see them in concert many, many times since Lollapalooza 92, but they, I will never understand the grateful dead like devotion people have to them.
1: Well, that's an interesting thing. Cause the dead are having their moment again. And yeah. especially with a lot of ex hardcore dudes that I am friends with. And I'm just like, I can't do it. I just can't. Can't, I've heard some of his country records he's done that I, I didn't hate, but like,
0: mm-hmm. I can't do the dead. My uncle, just... took, my uncle took me to see the dead with Jerry Garcia in the late eighties. And mm-hmm. I I didn't get it then. Mm-hmm. I, do, I don't get it now. I, I just, yeah. I know Greg Ginn from black flag. Like that's his favorite <sighs> thing ever. I just don't understand. Yeah. I just don't understand. And maybe that's a, a flaw in my ear i don't know yeah
1: have you watched uh that black flag documentary from the
0: 86 tour yeah
1: where it's just a bunch of like surfer dudes trying to wax poetic and deep and Mm -hmm. like yeah it's always greg gingo well man the thing about the dead you know man i think you just need to understand things and he's like clearly like a hippie and then rollins is like using it to try to like you know he's like nah man you know he's doing his shtick he's like on on camera you know you can tell he knows he's on camera and it's it's an interesting thing to watch having seen him on that tour to be like yeah i remember looking at the crowd when watching it like i wonder if i can see myself as a little kid in there (laughs) uh you're gonna have fun editing this
0: now we haven't even been i have a five hour five hour and 25 minute conversation with uh oh god damien from as friends rust that oh I, damien yeah Mario. i just i just split it into two I, I, I trimmed a couple things out and it's a great interview it's a great interview yeah um well and, he's he's a great guy oh i love him i love him yeah and it, it it same not the same subject but the same kind of tone like just two guys in their you know two, two old dudes two old dudes licking their wounds pretty much <laughs> <laughs> and, and talking about what's next and that's that's really that's really what uh i i'm most interested with you is is what's next because everything you've done i've enjoyed consecutively everything you've ever creatively put into the world Oh, that's so,
1: generous. Thank
0: you. Well, I mean, Jesus, I had such a connection to Endpoint, and I had an even deeper connection to guilt, and I always will. Guilt, guilt is never far from my reach, musically, creatively. <laughs> it's just, it's always been, and since it came into the world, it's been in my world and in my purview. Oh man,
1: I want you to hear these remixes because they're uh, Steve did an excellent job.
0: I can't wait. I can't yeah. wait for this.
1: <laughs> I know some people are going to be like, "Well, it's not the same," but I think everybody wanted that record to be heavier than it was, and you know, I I couldn't. I had to leave. We had to leave. My mom was dying. You know, I had to leave. Yeah. So you know, we would just like mix it, and it came in, and I was yeah, good enough. You know, I was distracted because I was like having to deal with all of that, and uh, you know, I think for what it is. Weston did a, uh, everything he could, uh, but I
0: just don't think we were very good in saying what we needed. Now, who who's going to release that for you this time around? Uh,
1: mind over, mind over matter.
0: Mind over matters doing the guilt record.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, because we were, we were, you know, I, he they had rescued Colony Collapse
2: from, mm-hmm.
1: you know. Not ever coming out from Port West passed away. Mm-hmm. God bless him, you know. Um, but uh, so they rescued it and uh, also asked had asked me to do the seven inch. So I was just, uh, do you want to do it? And of course, Juan had grown up in Louisville, cut his teeth on early Louisville stuff. So they said, yeah. So they're doing it. It's going to be a it'll be a twelve inch with a a seven inch with the two hidden tracks
0: oh okay that's amazing Mm -hmm. i'm i i can't believe it i actually can't believe it's happening because you know for years like i just had the 12 inch the victory 12 inch and i don't know what grade of vinyl they were getting pressed at that time but it always sounded thin thinner than the cassette and I don't know if that, I don't know if that was the 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 way the vinyl was mastered or just the the raw vinyl itself. Uh, uh, but I'm well,
1: I don't even remember who ended up mastering it. Um, A victory, we gave our recommendation, and Tony chose somebody else. Uh, um, uh, I don't think it was Alan, Duchess, but um. Yeah, I mean, like, it's hard to say because with labels, you know, sometimes, like, especially now where there's a shortage of, you know, a supply, not there's a backup.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, one person might go to United because they can't get this other press, and, and there's certain companies I know that have a superior vinyl and they use a certain kind of density and uh, you can ask for this density, but um, yeah, yeah. I, I never noticed that, but you know, it's like, well, you know how it is. You, you, you listen to a test pressing and that's it. Yeah. You don't ever, you know, you, you don't ever play your own record.
0: No, 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 not normally. Not unless you're really self-indulgent or you really, or it's many years later and you have to remember the songs. <laughs> or,
1: or you just like, you know, every now and then I like, yeah, yeah, I'll pull one up when I'm alone and listen to it for like, how's this hold up today? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and Barstown never held up and never, we, we just never quite happy with it. So we felt like it was time. So Kyle and I started talking and he said, you know what? I'll kick in the money let's do it and so yeah
0: god this is imp- th- this is important am i like to me that that i mean it might be something no one was asking for i don't know, <laughs> <laughs> you know to, to me i mean that that's a benchmark of of that era you know of the of that time period of of victory records there, that was one of maybe like five records that they put out that year that i liked
1: you know, I think it was an interesting time because I think he was trying the noise metal thing out, mm-hmm. right? And the dead guy clicked, and yeah. uh, I don't, I don't think the bloodlet clicked as much as he wanted it to, and I know guilt didn't click as much as he wanted it to. Um, he was hoping to get another endpoint, I think. Uh, but he was always—I mean, for what it was worth—he always would, you know, when. He hadn't even heard by the grace God, and he, saw, you know, wanted wanted us some victory before we even played a show,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know. Um, so yeah, you know, that that was good.
0: Yeah, and to me, like everything you just mentioned, though, that was all the stuff I liked in that time. Yeah, dead, I mean, they had guy bloodlet.
1: Some... Yeah, and that I mean, destroy the machines is a banger.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I just I hate the sound of it. I think that album yeah. sounds awful. I like the yeah, I like the songs.
1: I like to credit us for being the band that got them on Mesa. Um, because they, they they their band broke down in Salt Lake City, they had to borrow our gear. and they didn't like that they didn't have a gate on it, but I, I think people you know, we were like, you guys sounded so huge. With like two amps you know, you guys. And, you know, next time I saw them, they had Mesas. Um, But of course, they probably had their own, they
0: probably always wanted Mesas. But, you know, I like to think that I had some little influence (laughs) of that. But you have to admit that Destroy the Machine sounds very, very like just like it's getting played through an elevator like speaker or something. Velcro guitars
1: yeah yeah because there's not any of that tube midi the good tube mid sound in there
0: mm-hmm. yeah there's nothing warm about it but mm-hmm. your record had that i think bloodlet sounded oh god did that sound good and that was the first bloodlet wasn't even an album it was a collection mm-hmm. yeah you know. uh,
1: it was it called the
0: eclectic eclectic called, yeah right? yeah yep and then i mean god they only had a couple albums and they were done but uh
1: yeah yeah
0: i think that that's another benchmark of an awesome band though because if you really look back at most of the bands that were really influential and important they had a seven inch or a record and a seven inch
1: it's always good you know better to burn out than fade away right yeah <laughs> neil young wrote. Uh, uh yeah yeah i think uh there's definitely like seven seconds really went on a long time after that i think uh, they probably could have
0: yeah i mean i like i like soul force revolution but it it's not the crew <clears throat> i don't think yeah i don't think i ever made it that far i think i made it
1: i mean i think i would buy the records but then yeah you know, like i think i was one of those guys that was like there's half of new one that is great and half a new one that i can live without right like and it didn't help that I saw them so many times.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. Yeah. The first big hardcore band I'd ever seen was Seven Seconds. Yeah. You know, they they just, they toured constantly.
1: And they were like the big band. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, never really met any of them. That was one of those bands I never met.
0: You know, oh, like, okay. ne- Talk, yeah, about, talk most, about good guys, like really good guys. <clears throat> They're it. You could believe I'm
1: sure. I'm sure I had the opportunity to book them, but it was in the 90s when nobody really cared. And I just couldn't swing the show because, you know, there were bands that I would have done, but I just didn't think. Enough people would care. I had to pass on a Nirvana show in high school. What (laughs) I was like. Yeah, man, I'm just like a kid doing shows, and I I don't think I could probably do a thing for a band on tour Mm -hmm. right now. Kicking yourself much now? (laughs) Well, you know, there's some bands like the Tree People. I couldn't do that one time, and I wish I would have done that because, you know, Doug Marsh is such a good musician. Yeah. Uh, A lot of bands I wish I could have booked. had to pass on Helmet because uh, they wouldn't flex on the money. He's like, "They're going to be on the cover of Rolling Stone next month." I'm like, "I don't care." Yeah, I just. Like, oh, wouldn't, I wouldn't book a band that wanted uh that required a, a legal guarantee. And I'd always say, "Look, you know, this band, this local band, draws five hundred to a thousand people. It's going to do fine. I just can't sign on the line. I just." I'm a poor kid right so Mm -hmm. and that guy wouldn't budge and so they didn't end up playing and it would have been you know there are a couple bands where it would have been probably like Endpoint and Crane opening it would have been a huge show there
0: yeah
1: and they would have you know made out well because we always gave all the money to the touring bands but as someone who has been on tour and played to no one Mm-hmm. I can understand why people do guarantees. Yeah. <laughs> you
0: know? like, yeah. If it's your living, but yeah. you're not going to, you're not going to pull that off in, in the network that existed back then. I think things are a lot different now, but. I'm, you know, I mean,
1: I think, I think that they're those, they were on a level where they probably, they probably were used to that, but yeah, I mean, like with, well, by the grace of God, you know, um, sometimes we have to make a call. Like, uh, You know, like we don't like when we were in Europe, it was like we there were shows where we knew that they were. You know, sometimes these promoters will do a show one week that loses and the next week they get, you know, sick of it all or biohazard or some, you know, legacy band that's going to make them more than enough. So they're, they're used to that. Like, you know, I have friends that promote and would book by the grace of God for 100 euro. Uh, or a thousand euro where they know they're not going to make it just because they like the band but they also know they have shows coming up that you know that's give and take to the booking agents who give them you know here's a little band but here's the big band and uh sometimes i feel bad you know i'm like "Uh, sorry and most of the people like no don't worry about it yeah part of the game uh but you know i remember like but we always go on such a tight budget that we're like yeah i mean there was one guy he was like uh is this enough and we were like i want to say yes but i can't right like i want to say this is enough but i can't because we'll have to go home right like yeah (laughs) we won't be making enough to to justify you know what we're doing and uh yeah i remember as a kid a guy not a kid but in Europe that did it. And he, he, he went and got money out of his bank account. And I, you know, we were like, we're sorry, man, I like, I wish we could. you know. and he's like, No, I totally understand. You know, I, like, I knew it was a risk. I knew that it's just, you know, work night. And but <clears throat> um, I don't we don't ever demand it. Like, if somebody's like, I just can't, I don't even have the money, I can't afford to do it. We, we we're always we understand that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I've had even like as recently as five, six years ago when my band was still, you know, playing a lot. We haven't been since my son's been born. But I'm the queers had reached out to us and wanted to do a show mm-hmm. around here. And they had a hefty guarantee. They had a hefty guarantee. And my guitar player straight up told them, like, There's, I, we cannot even remotely mm-hmm. Remotely touch that, and then Joe, not his booking agent, he went around his booking agent and just said, "Dude, what could you get us?" And we yeah. said, well, "We'll guarantee you this much, and then if we get more, we'll make sure it goes to you." And they made You're out. Right. Like, they made out like bandits. It's the queers. They are. They have a built-in. Usually audience. the way. And it worked out in his favor. And yeah I, I still have a, a, a positive relationship with Joe i changed my opinion of that band actually i always liked their music but i always had kind of a beef with him because Mm -hmm. because you know he's friends with ben from screeching weasel and they all have that pseudo right-wing kind of philosophy i guess you could call it sort of close sort of a
1: closed mind in a way yeah
0: but it turned out he was not like that at all he was a beautiful guy so yeah like what we hear and what we see yeah it's very different things turned out he was one yeah. hell of a guy so that was a great experience no, that's, good. that's good conversely I, I've booked shows for bands that have great reputations and, and it completely went sideways so.
1: and that's the thing it's like sometimes it's hard for us to realize that sometimes people just have bad days like yeah. when I interviewed I was part of a I was managing a show a radio show when I was in grad school uh, as a side gig and we interviewed Blom Redhead and, and she was going through some personal stuff, but she, she made the interview impossible and was pretty rude, And, and I, you know, I was kind of like, as you know, we tend to be just like, well, that band, screw that band forever, you know? And uh, you know, a friend in common with them was like, yeah, man, like, she, she can have a bad day. And I, mm-hmm. it, it never, yeah, I don't know why that had never sort of, I think because I always went so far out of my way to just hide whatever I was really feeling and try to be cool. But then I was just like,
0: right, man, what's wrong with me? Like, why didn't I, you know, duh, yeah." You know. Like, we always expect people to show up for certain things, things like this uh, with their best <laughs> face, their their best face on. And a lot of times it's just impossible, especially whatever the weight of whatever you're carrying. You know, yeah. I mean, as someone who, you know, I'm I'm in recovery. I know a, I, I was like a test subject for uh, Prozac, <laughs> you know, when I was a young yeah. kid. Of course, of course, people can have bad days, uh, and I and I know right. that. But in the moment, you forget.
1: In the moment, yeah. Especially if you're really into the band, it's just like
0: <laughs> crushing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If I ever met um, Ian MacKay and he was a prick, oh. <laughs>
1: oh, you know, I can tell you this about Ian. If he meets you when you're 16 in 1987, if you see him in 2020, he's going to remember you. so I'm told so i'm told um i actually have to go yes Um, i don't i don't want to because i'm really enjoying this but uh, we've got a got an errand to run
0: absolutely you go do your thing i'm so glad you came on this was a fantastic
1: and again sorry about all the the misses early um it's quite all right i'm glad we connected and uh let's keep in touch and uh, i'm gonna mail I'm going to send you something in the email later. Okay. So I, just I do really,
0: I will. I really appreciate yeah. everything, Duncan.
1: Yeah, no, I appreciate everything. And it's good to see you again, man.
0: Likewise, my friend. <laughs> I'll talk to you soon. Take care. You as All well. All right. Thanks. Bye bye now. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my uh, old buddy, Duncan Barlow. It's always amazing to reconnect with someone that you'd known so far back in your past, and you always had an admiration for, whose career trajectory you just paid attention to for the almost entirety of your adult life, or in Duncan's case, uh, my pre-adult or young adult life. (laughs) You know, and um, hardcore is supposed to be the sort of genre that, you know, doesn't contain the rock star motif, but invariably, as people, you know, garner any sort of acclaim, uh, it can go to their heads. Not the case here. Duncan has always been very proletariat-based, down-to-earth, just a punk's punk, for lack of a better term. And as you can hear from the banter It truly is. Just two old dudes licking their wounds. (laughs) So for those of you who are paying attention, have been with us throughout this three-hour conversation, who have been with me from the beginning of this podcast, I really want to thank you, and I want to assure you that just so long as you keep listening I will keep bringing you this level of product so from all of us at 3 a.m studios I've been Peter he's been Duncan you've been beautiful everybody take care of yourselves and have a great night This has been the book of Very, Very Bad Things podcast. Good night, everybody.